Hi, this is Jalen for Dobbs, where tire buying is easy. At GoToDobbs.com, shop brands, sizes, pricing, and our amazing deals. With 40-plus locations, get same-day install. For tires, it's Dobbs. For deals you can use, click on GoToDobbs.com now. Time now for the BK and Ferrario podcast, presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. So what I think the Cardinals have been in their recent iteration is a team of pitchers that generally uh, pitch to contact and get a lot of weak contact, which is really good, and gets a lot of good outcomes, but that our, uh, that our metric says, well, I don't know if that's something that's going to hold up over time. Because in a lot of cases it doesn't, but because the Cardinals' defense is good every year, year in and year out, top-tier defense, they keep beating our estimation. So that, that's one part of it. That was our friend from Baseball Prospectus, Craig Goldstein, who joins us each and every year around this time of the year because it's the Pocota Projections Day. Alongside Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kiley. we got Bradford Bruns along for the ride with us today. Alex out a couple more days. He'll be back in with us next week. T-Bone, it is officially Pocota Projections Day, which means it is Cardinals Get Mad Math Day. And yet this year, I don't think that's going to be the take. Normally, we come on the air right around mid-February. Cardinals are getting ready to head down to Jupiter for spring training, and everybody's up in arms because Pakoda, those mean old computers, have come up with an 81-win projection for your St. Louis Cardinals. That was the case in 2022. It was the case in 2021. You look back even beyond that, every year it felt like Pakoda was a little light on their projection. If you look at it, 22, they were 12 wins fewer on their projection than what the Cardinals won that season. Beyond that, nine wins, five wins, four wins, seven wins, four wins, 11 wins, all the way since 2015. From 2015 to 2022, they were light on the Cardinals every single season. And yet, last year, they were actually far more optimistic about the Cardinals than what ended up taking place. And that answer there by Goldstein is exactly why. The Cardinals pitching fell apart. For the first time in a decade, their model of going with pitching to contact, believing in their defense, it all broke. Every piece of it, the pitch to contact part of it, broke. The actual pitchers themselves broke. The defense, the damn broke. And so all of it went awry. And now we're going into this season, T-Bone. And we have some new projections from Baseball Prospectus. They came out earlier today, and I was a little bit surprised by this. I'm not going to lie to you. They ended up having the Cardinals as an 86-win team. That is not the surprising part. The surprising part to me, T-Bone, is that they had the Cardinals as the third-best team in the National League. The only teams they had with a better record going into the season, Atlanta with 101 wins and the Dodgers with 101 wins. After that, it's just the Cardinals. 85 and a half is what they're projecting. Now, this will not be enough. If you go into the season and you win 86 games, let's round up a little bit here, you're not going to be the third best team in the National League. I went back through since 2014. There have been at least four teams every single season that won 87 or more games. And last year was the only season in which it was four. Every other year since 2015, it's been five or six teams in the NL that finished with 87 or more wins. T-Bone, when you look at this and you see the projection 86 wins, what does that mean to you as you internalize it? 
Well, I, I think that, that the projection's about right, that 86 wins feels about what I expect from this Cardinals team. I, I'm a little surprised, as you were, that they were kind of viewed as a better team, at least in the simulations, compared to Philadelphia and the Arizona Diamondbacks, because I just look at those two teams and using the eye test and seeing what they've done this offseason and go, Philly and Arizona is clearly better than the St. Louis Cardinals. And, and I, I think the Cardinals are in that third tier, I would say. But that's a playoff caliber team at the 86-win mark. So I, I found it a little surprising that they were at that point tied, if not a little bit better than Philadelphia and Arizona. But I, I think this feels right. I mean, I know like some years, I remember one year we looked at it and it was like 76 wins was the projection for the Cardinals. That This feels what I expect it's from the Cardinals. 81. Yeah. Oh, was it 81? Yeah, it's never been that low. But. Oh, well. Closer. Usually I look at that still <laughs> and go, that's pretty low. I, I think this is about right. I, I truly believe they are about an 85-win team before they do whatever may come up at the trade deadline. So I think Cardinals fans for the first time in a decade are in line with this. I think most Cardinals fans looked at it and said, yeah, 85, 86 wins. That feels about right to me. And I think where Cardinals fans disagree with it is it has nothing to do with the Cardinals projection and everything to do with what is happening around the Cardinals. I think most fans, T-Bone, are like you, where you can pick different horses. Maybe you're a Philly guy. Maybe you're somebody that thinks that Arizona is going to be better. Maybe you still believe in the San Diego Padres. Whoever it is that you're betting on, that, that horse that you're going with, you probably think there's like three or four teams around the National League that are slightly better than the Cardinals heading into this season. And what these projections are telling you is, yeah, they're all basically the same. Like every team other than the Dodgers and the Braves are somewhere in that muddied middle of the National League, similar to what we're talking about with that like wild card range for the Western Conference in the NHL. That's kind of what we're talking about here with that three through seven-ish in the NL. And so I think that is where maybe Pakoda and a lot of the projection systems go in a different direction there's that fork in the road moment with cardinals fans is hey they don't see these other teams as as big of a behemoth to overcome as we do here in st louis and so i wanted to ask this question t-bone what if pakota's right what if the cardinals are the third best team in the national league during the regular season i'm not talking about postseason anything like that just yet they finish with 86 wins. It's a weird year. Somehow this team ends up only getting to 86, and that's that's good enough to win the division, and you're the three seed in the postseason. And then you win a wild card round. And you go to the NLDS. You face off against, I don't know, the Dodgers. And you lose three games to two. It's a hard-fought series. It's close. It's competitive. You lose in a five-game set against the Dodgers, three games to two. So you won 85, 86 games. You win the NL Central, you get back to the playoffs, you win the wild card series, finally you advance beyond the wild card round, and you lose in a five-game set against the Dodgers. Is that a success? Is that in your mind something that you could look back on and say to yourself, you know what, the Cardinals reached expectations this season? The way they are currently constructed, I would say yes. And it would leave just a little bit to be desired, I think. Because I, I think the way they are constructed right now, I, I think I would sign up. If you said you can hit a button, they win 86 games, and they lose in five games to the Dodgers, I'd go, yeah, all right, I'll hit that button. Because that, that feels right. That feels like where they should be. You want to see them win a playoff series for the first time since 2019. So I would say, yes, the way they are constructed, I, I would call that a success. But where it is kind of tough to, for me to 
judge this is I look at this team and because of what you just said of how there's kind of that muddy middle here in the National League outside the Dodgers and the Braves and I look at the Cardinals I go they only are missing one thing and it's a number two starter and if you get them that number two starters or favored like the Dodgers but man they have a fighting chance all of a sudden against that those two teams compared to like right now I look at it and go yeah they can't beat Atlanta and best of five they couldn't beat the Dodgers in a best of five so like I would say yes the way they are constructed it would be a successful season but there's still I think a lot to be desired because they feel so close to being able to at least compete at a better level with those two top dogs in the NL so I put this out on Twitter and I I didn't really know this is one of those strange seasons where I I'm actually having a tough time somebody texted me the other day and said hey what do you think would be a success for the Cardinals based on what our our text line or our listeners are saying on a daily basis and I said I, it's kind of hard for me to say like I don't know because I can't speak for all of them I think there's multiple different camps on this and so I put it out on Twitter of would you consider that scenario that I just laid out for you a successful season for the Cardinals 61% of the responses so far and there's about 500 votes in total thus far said yeah I would consider that a successful season for the Cardinals I think I would too but it's not something where I'm like, I'm smashing the button to lock it in and I don't want to see how this thing plays out because I don't think there's any more upside. I do think there's more upside for the Cardinals and 85, 86 wins. I do think there's more upside than just getting to the NLDS and losing in a competitive series. But I'm kind of like you, T-Bone. The thing that frustrates me when I see these kinds of projections is not the win total. It's not anything about what's happening around them in the national... It's the opportunity that exists right now yeah. that the Cardinals are unwilling or unable to take advantage of. I heard John Mosaylock on the Cardinals radio network over the weekend, and he was asked by the host, hey, and it was laid out in a way where it's like, hey, just give me the answer that you know we all want to hear, right? The host said the question was basically, hey, I know you always believe that there's opportunities that exist out there. So if something were out there starting pitching wise, that's probably something you'd at least look into, right? And Mo essentially shut it down. No, he's we like, are done. He's like, no, I don't I don't really see a scenario in which we're going to go out there and get another starter. It's like, man, but why? Like, you say you've learned all of these lessons from the difficult season that you just went through. And yet last year, how many times, T-Bone, did he say, hey, we've got five. We've got five starters. In fact, we've got six starters. Well, okay, you feel that way again this year. But one of those starters, Steven Matz, had a lot of success coming out of the bullpen. And is it really that bad of a thing if you have an overqualified reliever who can slot into your rotation at a moment's notice or, if you need to do that? Or hell, go to a six-man rotation. It's sure. what the Dodgers are doing. It's becoming a modern thing in baseball But now. even if you're unwilling or unable to do that, just put him in the pen. His, stri his stuff plays up. This isn't like Adam Wainwright last year where we talked about it. We're like, whoa. Dude, if this doesn't work out, like, you have nothing you can do with it. His only value is that he brings innings to the table. That's not the case for Steven Matz. Steven Matz has real swing and miss stuff from the left side with the ability to go in and be not just a reliever that you're, like, putting into the Casey Lawrence type of a role where you bring him out of the bullpen every <laughs> seventh day to be like, hey, 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 look who we got. No, it's not a, like solar eclipse that's taking place when Steven Matz would be coming out of the bullpen. You'd have him coming out with leverage opportunities. He could give you a couple of innings. Like, this is a real role that you could carve out for him, and I would trust Ollie to do that. But instead, they're just kicking the can down the road, doing the same thing that they've done in previous seasons, where it's like, okay, 
We've got a lineup that we really like. I think their bullpen has a chance to be really good this year. Not special, but really good. I think the back end of the rotation is solid. I think the number one starter is solid. You're missing. You've got a donut in your rotation. There's a round little hole coming around the number two starter spot that you have yet to fill. And you're just saying, yeah, there's two guys out there that are really good that we would love to have in our rotation with Jordan Montgomery and Blake Snell. Nobody signed them yet, but we're not interested. Why? This shows you with the projections that there is a real opportunity to start out the season and kick the door down, dude. You can't win your division early on. You can't get the number two seed early on, but you can absolutely lose it. And if you have that number two starter in place, you give yourself one hell of an opportunity to kick that door down, show that you're competitive, set yourself up even better for the trade deadline. And now instead of being stuck in this muddy middle where we get to mid-July and we're all talking around in this room, thinking to ourselves, do you get super aggressive or is it just too hard to see this team beating the Dodgers or the Braves in the, uh, in the postseason? Now you already have that number two starter. And you can talk to yourself about, okay, if they continue to add to this core, now we're talking about a real contender. They're just unwilling or unable to do that. And really, if they're unable, it's by their own doing. Yeah, 100%. And I think if you went out and you added another starter, like you go out and you sign a Snell or you sign a Montgomery or, hell, you even trade for a Dylan Cease, you know what else you end up helping your cause towards preventing doing in 2025? You prevent this ideology of, oh, if this is a bad year, we can just kind of tear it apart and start over from anew. Because you're going to be better positioned to win this year. And what what is the whole talk of, like, you know, that we've talked about a 2025 is kind of a question mark because of the TV deal. And, hey, if this year goes awry, you can just kind of move away from Goldie. And then maybe you can try and find a way to kind of reset things and reset the book. Well, you know how you help avoid that? You make your team better by going out there and getting a number two starter. So you're right. The, the opportunity is out there for them. The opportunity is, hey, we can clearly make ourselves the third best team in the national league we can be sitting in our own tier you know there can be tier one between the dodgers and braves tier two the cardinals and then tier three everybody else and they say now this tier three this is nice (laughs) we we got friends we got the phillies we've got the diamondbacks we got the padres we're here with our homies we don't need to take another step to get to that second tier because if we a get to tier two we still may not be able to beat the dodgers and braves so you know what let's just let's let them do their thing We'll hope that they deal with really big injuries, and that's why they end up falling apart in October. They're the kid, and I've used this metaphor before, but they're the kid that every summer goes to the pool, and he tells his parents all spring, this is the year that I'm going to go off the high dive. This is the year that I'm going to go off the high dive. This is the year that I'm going to go off the high dive. And the Cardinals this offseason, I think actually, like, unlike previous years, they actually climbed that ladder. They got up to the top of the high dive. They looked around. They saw what it was like, and they were like, you know what? This is pretty cool. I kind of like the view from up here. They even stepped out all the way to the ledge, and then when they looked down and saw just how high they were, they sprinted down and climbed right back down that ladder and said, I'm more comfortable over here on the low dive. And they plunged in, they did their cannonball, and they celebrated as if they had just jumped off the high dive. But we all watched. We all saw you go up to the top and then come right back down and go to the same spot that you've been every single Memorial Day for your entire life. That's what they do, man. They go up to the high dive and realize this is just not for us. The Dodgers, that's their game. The Phillies, that's their game. Braves, that's their game. We're going to get over here. We are very comfortable with the low dive. You can still have a lot of fun jumping off of that low dive. You can do all your different tricks and tips. 
But by the end of the, the summer, you're just doing the same thing over and over and over and over again. There's nothing wrong with it inherently, but you don't have the thrill seeking of getting up to the top of the high dive and actually experiencing what it means to dive off of it. All right, coming up in about 15 minutes or so, we're getting into some NFL quick hitters. We got to talk about last night, the opening night for the Super Bowl. The events went with uh, really no news to speak of, but Roger Goodell did move his press conference to yesterday. I've got some thoughts on a couple of the things that he had to say yesterday, so we'll get into that coming up at 1130. You guys can always get involved in the show. 314-399-9646 is the Air Comfort Service text line. That is the place to get your text in. You can always call us on that line as well. Again, it's 314-399-9646. That is where you can leave those voicemails that we will be taking throughout the day today and the youtube chat is off and running we've got the uh the graveyard over there youtube.com slash 101 espn stl the studio cams are powered by the air alliance team coming up next doug armstrong told the fast lane that the blues are going to be in neutral when it comes to the trade deadline what does that mean for them? We'll talk about it next here on 101 ESPN. All these crazy alien stories can't be true, can they? Hey, it's Stephen Diener, host of the Unidentified Alien Podcast. And whether you're new to the conversation or have been looking into it for years, you need to check out the fastest growing alien show out there, the Unidentified Alien Podcast, or UAP for short. There's a crazy amount of alien encounter stories out there from all over the world. And the beauty of it is that I bring them all to you and let you decide what you believe. Download and subscribe to UAP on any of the major podcasting platforms. And you can also find it on UAPpodcast.com. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast, presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Probably neutral uh, is, is where I would see it if we stay here now. We, we've, added, we've added young assets. We have good young players. Uh, what we want to do is continue to build to that. Uh, you know, the players will dictate a little bit on what we do, but... Uh, I don't think that there's any one trade that, that's going to make us favorites. So let's say we get into to the wild card spot as a, a favorites against the number one seed in the Pacific, or the number one seed in the Central. So you you want to be as competitive as you can, but you want to be realistic in what you're doing. Uh, with that being said, you know you never know in the NHL what, what's going to happen and what trade might come up. It could be a it could be a couple of a younger prospect for somebody that's got some term, and, and you look at doing that too. So that was. Doug Armstrong, the Blues president of Hockey Operations, on with the fast lane on Friday talking about what the Blues' plans are as they get closer and closer to the NHL's trade deadline. We're just about five, six weeks away from the deadline this year. We are only a few days away from the Blues getting back into action on Saturday in Buffalo. They got a bit of a road trip out east, Buffalo, Montreal, and Toronto before they come back home next week to kick off the second half of the season. T-Bone, I think that's the right approach to take this year for the Blues team. I don't think they should be looking actively to make any big moves either to ship somebody out or to bring somebody in at this year's deadline I think those moves take place in the offseason get as much information on this team as you can during this 82 game season and hopefully it results in them getting to the playoffs and then figure out what your next step is from there like I think by the end of the season we're probably going to see Jimmy Snuggerud there was a piece over in the athletic earlier today from Jeremy Rutherford who talked to Snuggerud and basically the prevailing thought that I took away from that was, yeah, I think he's going to come over and I think he's going to make that decision as the season comes to an end. And if that takes place, he's going to have a spot in your top nine. He's not going to be a fourth line player for you. That doesn't make any sense. Otherwise, just 
let him go ahead and end his season on a high note and he can come up to the NHL level next year. But I think he's going to be in your top nine and I think he's going to take a spot of like a Sammy Blay slash Torpchenko and you move one of those guys down to your fourth line. Cool. Feel good about that. Get information there. Don't plug that spot in your lineup with somebody that you're bringing in that's like a Phil Kessel type at the deadline and then suddenly you're now you're looking around you're like oof I, I don't know where we're gonna put Jimmy Snuggerud when he's here so I think this is the right approach to take by the Blues I don't think they have obvious candidates to trade that have significant value the way that they did a year ago anybody that has value will still be on the team going into the offseason yeah I agree I, I think when you look at this team they don't have anybody that is you absolutely have to trade them because you would get a massive haul except for maybe Buchnevich, but you wouldn't do that, in my opinion, unless it was A, you were really out of it, or B, you wait till the offseason if you want to make that move. And at this point, you're at the option B of waiting till the offseason if you're going to do that move, if you're not going to re-sign him. But I, I, they don't have anything significant like they had last year. And I, I think what Army said was, you know, I think he's right. They They can't add enough pieces, or they shouldn't spend the capital to go out and add significant pieces because they, I don't think they can contend with the top six teams in the Western Conference. You know, they might be able to pull off one upset, but to get through the gauntlet of the Western Conference throughout the playoffs and go on a Stanley Cup run, it just wouldn't be worth it. And, and they're more than one piece short from getting there. You know, it's not a move where you look at like what Vancouver did before the All Star break where they make the trade and it was, hey, that's the one piece that can potentially put us over the top. So I, I think they're probably just standing pat. I, I still think that they should be looking for a forward that can slot into their top nine that has some term left. And he kind of, I think he left that little caveat in there yep. at the back end of his answer there. That That's like the only thing that I would say, like if the blues had a to-do list and I don't even know if it's like a need more of just like a want would be, can you find a forward that's got some term on him? I guess like my question year? would be this though. Like, so Booch, Thomas, Cairo, neighbor, Shin, Saad, Kevin Hayes, those seven players we agree will be in your top nine the rest of the year, right? Barring injury. Yeah. Kapanen will be in your top nine barring injury, right? Yes. Whenever he returns from this injury. And then the other guy that I would have in that group would be Jimmy Snuggerud whenever he comes back or whenever he is has made the decision to come up to the NHL level. Well, there's your top nine. So if you do add somebody to this mix, it needs to be somebody that has flexibility of going up and down to that fourth line. Um, and that, that just changes the type of player that you're potentially looking for in that scenario. Or, or and, and this was kind of the thinking that I had of it, is whoever comes in, you know, they probably slot on, let's say, that third line with Hayes and Kapanen. And then whenever, and, and look, they you don't really have a guaranteed timeline of when Jimmy Snuggerud would be up if they signed him to that entry-level contract. So I wouldn't necessarily worry about that. I would get to that point when you get there. But I would then say, like, I'd be open to the idea of, like, okay, maybe you slot Kapanen down to the fourth line because he's not here in the he's not here in the future. He has no future for sure. the Blues. So I don't think there's like, oh, do you worry about you know just have him replace Nathan Walker? On yeah, that you, you replace him there, and then then you can figure out what to do with Snuggerud. Whether you put him on the third line, second, or first line. But I would operate on the assumption of like I can't go out and get a top nine forward because I have Kapanen and um, Snuggerud as third liners. I would say, okay, well, I would just bump Kapanen down to the fourth line, pull Walker out of the lineup. And I think that's the way I would operate going to the trade deadline. Your decision at the deadline to get somebody, though, that has multiple years of term left, that just is something that doesn't happen very often. Yeah. Guys that get dirt traded at the deadline more often than not are players that are entering their expiring deals. So if somebody becomes available that is in line with what you're discussing, that can be like a middle six forward for you, not just for right now, but through this retool, I'm more than willing, more than interested in the Blues going out and finding that player. 
I, I just find it highly unlikely that they I, become available. Maybe this is where I should clarify, because I don't think it needs to be someone that's got like two, three years left on their contract. I'm willing to take on another reclamation project, if you will, to insert into the top nine. Like they did with Verona last year where they brought him in so and he to, had term with like another year on his deal. Gotcha. That's what I'm looking for. Is I'm looking for Kevin Hayes. Yeah, exactly. Someone that has so, at least next year on the contract. If they have more pass next year, then okay, then that's even better. Do but you think that's a requirement for you at the deadline or something that you're just like, I, if, I, if it becomes available, cool. If not, no biggie. I, I think it's more of a want. I, I wouldn't classify it as a need because I don't like... I don't think there's a single move that would necessarily potentially make sense for the St. Louis Blues, but I would go into the deadline kind of like just digging around a little bit, like, hey, how much how much would you want for this guy that's got another year term sure. left? Because if you do bring someone in that, say, has just next year on the contract, like the Verona move, the Captain move when they claimed him off of waivers last year, you, you get to go into next season, another year in a retool, and you say, okay, let's see how he fits. Is he one that maybe he sticks and we say, hey, he's going to be a part of this team through the retool, we'll sign him to a contract extension. Or is he going to fall into the same role of, of captain, which is more of, okay, like it's nice having him, but we're not going to have him here next year, or the Verona role where it was, oh, this was a complete I failure. guess my concern and the reason why I'm not sure that I'm as interested in doing that this year as I was last year, I would get guys like that that are on expiring deals more than I would that have multiple years of term lefts to find out what it looks like the rest of this season, like with the Sammy Blay situation. I think that's what I'm looking for this year is like a guy that is expiring, and if he wants to resign him, cool, more power to you. Because next year, you should be talking about Zach Dean potentially being ready for the NHL level or Bolduc potentially being ready for the NHL level. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Let's dive into some NFL quick hitters alongside Tanner Hendrickson and Bradford Bruns. I'm Brandon Kylie. If you guys have any questions, get them in on the air comfort service text line at 314-399-9646. We will get to questions and answers coming up next. But T-Bone, let's start things out here by talking about the press conference that took place yesterday with Roger Goodell. I didn't think did you get any- an invite. I didn't. Did oh, you? No, I did not. No, well, it might be in the mail. I didn't find any of his answers to be particularly enthralling. Like if you wanted to have a headline, it was probably that. He doesn't anticipate the Super Bowl going to streaming at any point while he's the commissioner. Anybody that thought that it was going to, I've got beachfront property to sell you here in St. Louis. Like, no, of course not. It's the highest rated and most watched show on television. Like the, the amount of money that they make from having that on regular TV They're never going to, as long as there is an option of having it on regular television, network television, they're not moving that to streaming. That's crazy. But anyways, that's neither here nor there. I had an issue with the way that they operated with this in general. So if you go back a few years to the 2021 Super Bowl, that was the one that was actually impacted by COVID. That was the year that it was the Chiefs versus the Buccaneers. It was played in Tampa Bay. The Chiefs didn't even get to Tampa Bay until Saturday of Super Bowl week. There was no like Super Bowl week the way that there is this week in Las Vegas. There was no radio row. None of that took place. And so the press conference with Roger Goodell was a smaller group of people. You had to be vaccinated. You had to wear your mask. So that's the backdrop to this. That was 2021. 2022, they opened it up a little bit, but it was still a smaller group of people. It was kind of quote unquote invite only because there were still some COVID restrictions that were in place. Last year went back to the normal thing. And I think last year was on like Tuesday or something. It used to be the last thing that took place in Super Bowl week. It would be like this massive 
Roger Goodell is talking. It is Friday afternoon. There is nothing else that will take place. The next thing you're going to see is the game, the final game of the regular season, and Roger will make his comments that will go into the weekend. Well, this year they restricted it again. So for those that aren't aware about how this story took place, they decide to move up this week, like over the weekend, the Roger Goodell press conference to Monday afternoon, which is like the kickoff of Super Bowl week. For those that aren't familiar with the way that this works, when you're on Radio Row, it gets more and more crowded as the week goes on. Monday, there's like nobody there. Yeah. I produced a week in, in Miami when the Chiefs went to the Super Bowl against the 49ers the last time around. There's like nobody walking around. You're, you're getting like some random boxer that you've never heard of before <laughs> on the broadcast. And then by Friday, you're getting like the biggest stars in the world, right? So... There was a clear reason why they moved this to Monday. There's fewer people available to ask questions. They want to make sure that it is as small of a group as possible. They can control the message. They also made it invite only. So there's certain people that would have asked difficult questions that aren't going to be invited. There's going to be certain subjects that might have been breached that were not taken to task at this press conference. And it was held in the Raiders locker room to make sure that there wasn't any overflow that could take place with media members. Yeah, that's weird. We all knew that Roger Goodell was a fraud here in St. Louis. That's not surprising to anybody listening to this right now. And everything that he says at these press conferences, for the most part, is a lie. But I hate the way that they approach this. It's a terrible look for the league. And the way that Roger Goodell went about it, trying to make it seem like, oh, this is actually us doing you a favor. We're trying to get everything out of the open early so we can just, you know, kick things off with Roger talking to them. Get out of here. You know what you're doing here. This is nonsense. Yeah, I did not think it was a good look. When I saw that the report came out that it was, you know, just invite only, I went, why? That is that is the most like, hey, let's limit what people can ask to our commissioner. Like you said, if there's a topic that he knows a writer's been covering and he goes, I don't want to answer that. Yeah, guess who didn't get the invite, and it's just like ours, lost in the mail. So I, I thought it was a terrible look for the NFL. I mean, think of all the criticism that has come to just about every commissioner in yep. sports. Like, think back to Rob Manford for the lockout and how that was handled. Rob Manford never limited who could go to his press conferences, though. So I, I thought, I agree with you, I thought it was a terrible look, putting it in the Raiders' locker room, limiting what was asked, and then, like you said, there was nothing that came out of that. That was all fluff that was all like answering questions without answering the question it was just classwork by the nfl and what i would expect from them i think the biggest thing that i took away from the the invite only piece of this is actually the local writers that were not able to go to something like this because when when you cover a team locally you're just more in tune with the issues that exist for them like do we need a new stadium here is there something within this team like for years, the Patriots were going to the Super Bowl, right? The Boston media always asked about Deflategate. They would just find new ways to ask the same questions over and over and over again. Is that a waste of Roger's time? Sure, but it's the only opportunity that these people have to interrogate him, basically. And it's about his job. Exactly. That's what he's paid. I think it's like $60 million yeah. to do. So it's so unbelievably frustrating when you have a situation like this where the commissioner is just completely ducking the questions that are necessary to ask. All right, next thing up here as we go through some NFL quick hitters. Guys, there's going to be a lot written this week, kind of looking big picture long term about Patrick Mahomes. I wanted to take a look back. T-Bone, is there a play that immediately comes to mind for you? when you think about Patrick Mahomes, like one that represents who he is as a player, or maybe it's just like your favorite play that he's had so far in his career. Cause I think there was a piece over on the ringer with the 15 
Patrick Mahomes plays that will rest in lore from his first, whatever it is, six years of his career, is there one for you that immediately sticks out? So, like, I I don't know if there's one. I, I think it's more of a drive that sticks out for me, and it's the 13-second drive against the Buffalo Bills. The fact that he was able to accomplish that, and, and look, I know that's not just, like, Patrick Mahomes making an incredible play. A lot of that was Kelsey making a great play as well. But just thinking back to that, like, I'm always going to remember that Patrick Mahomes play. Like, I'm always going to remember that drive against the Buffalo Bills because when there's 13 seconds left, the game should be over. So I would say that's the one for me. It's not really a play. It's more of a drive. That's the number one thing that sticks out for me in the first six years of Mahomes. Yeah, that's a pretty obvious one. I could point to dozens of different throws that were obviously executed by Mahomes. But frankly to me, BK, I think about the run as recent as last season, obviously the game-winning drive in the Super Bowl, being able to make that scramble up the gut, pushed out of the pocket for 15 or so yards, because that also came on the heels of the late first half play on which he re-aggravated the ankle injury. So for me, that is really, really iconic. It's the left-handed pass for me. Broncos, Monday night football, early on in his career, and he he's going over, he's like being Von Miller, who at the time is in his prime, is chasing him. You gotta have it on this play. He's running towards the left sideline and switches hands to throw the ball to Tyreek Hill for the first down late in the game with the Chiefs trailing three minutes to go in 2018. That, that's when I was like, okay, this is different than anything we've ever seen by a Chiefs quarterback or by potentially any quarterback. His creativity, to me, is what makes him unique. I've seen a lot of quarterbacks that have good arm strength. Your guy, Matt Stafford, unbelievable. Cannon of an arm. He does some stuff where it's like the no-look passes. Like, he was one of the first that I saw do that. Aaron Rodgers, back, shoulder, uh, back foot, just like tossing it, slinging it 60 yards in the air. I've seen some stuff. We've all seen some stuff. From special quarterbacks around the league, Brett Favre, how many throws did you see him make where you just looked at it you're like, what? It doesn't even make sense. It defies the laws of physics. When Mahomes threw it left-handed, that was something that I don't know that I've seen before. You know what's funny? is like I had no memory of that play until I read it in the really? ringer. Yeah, when I read that article, I was like skimming through all those. I was like, what did he throw left-handed? I was like, I have no memory of that. You think I would remember that because you're right. We've seen all different quarterbacks do all kinds of different moves. I've never seen them switch hands and throw it, but I don't remember that play at all, and I don't know why. I don't either. Maybe I mean, it was a Monday night football game, so it wasn't a playoff game, so it's possibly just more watching. And we know what Monday night football used to be before they had Buck and uh, Aikman. It was bad. (laughs) I will never – that was the booger time when he was the the color commentator, and he was on it on his little booger mobile on the (laughs) sideline. With Jason Witten and Jason Witten's commentary on this play, it was the it, go back. I anybody in our listening audience right now, go back and rewatch the replay of this and listen to what Jason Witten has to say. He's trying to say he pulled a rabbit out of his hat, and it took like seventy seconds to get to that statement. Transitional phase in the booth. Ooh. It was I, rough, dude. And, uh, it look, was so bad. I wasn't even just taking a shot at the broadcast crew. Remember, Monday Night Football used to get terrible games as well. Mm-hmm. Like, ever since, I think, during that time, ESPN finally said, okay, A, we need a real football crew, and B, they said, NFL, would you please give us football games that are worth selling? So, uh, yeah, that maybe that's why I don't remember. I forgot Jason Wint was in the broadcast booth for a little bit. It was so I, bad. He was so bad. Didn't he go back to, like, the Raiders a year later? He did. Wasn't that what happened? He went to play again, and then now I think he's coaching a high school team in Tennessee now. Nice. 
Good for him. I think he, if I'm not mistaken, I think he got the job that Trent Dilfer used to have at a high school in uh, in Tennessee. Uh, yeah. Mizzou got a commit from them a couple of years ago. Oh, good for them. All right, next thing up here, Eric Bieniemy. We've got to talk about it, ladies and gentlemen. It was announced yesterday he will not be back as the offensive coordinator with the Washington Commanders. Here's the problem. Uh, we're pretty late in this cycle. There's not a whole lot of jobs that remain open at this point because the Commanders thought they had their man in Ben Johnson, and he was like, yo, I'm not coming. And so they had to turn their attention to Dan Quinn, who went a different direction with his offensive coordinator. He got Cliff Kingsbury as his new guy to be in charge of that yeah. offense. I think he probably should just retain Eric Bieniemy, but that's either here nor there. Is Eric Bieniemy going to have an OC job this year, guys? Is is he going to be a play caller? Is he ever going to get a head coaching? Like, is it over for Eric Bieniemy in the national spotlight conversation? National spotlight conversation, I would say no. I because I don't think he's getting a job this year, but I could see where by the end of next season, when we get through and we get back into the coaching hiring cycle. I could see him becoming a hot name of okay, who's going to go hire him to be their next offensive coordinator? I don't. I think you can put it to rest him being a head coach. I don't think that's going to happen. Um, but I, I think he'll become a hot commodity next off season when the jobs kind of reset and everybody fires their offensive coordinator or the head coach gets fired and they have to change the staff over. I see him becoming a big time name that people will go after because of his success with the Kansas City Chiefs. I, I thought when he left to go to Washington, I knew he was being hired to be fired like you knew Ron Rivera was at the end you knew he wasn't going to have success with Sam Howe and I don't even think that's a shot against Eric Bieniemy. I mean there's a lot of offensive coordinators that would have been fired with Sam Howell as their quarterback so I think he's still going to be in the national spotlight it's just going to be next year I don't know what he's going to do this year I he may have to take like a what do they call those like advisory role where yeah. he's like the offensive assistant go yeah. do like what Cliff Kingsbury did in at USC that job needs to be filled go take that job have we seen anybody hired i I'm just making sure I haven't missed anything from the Raiders. Have they hired an OC yet that you're aware of? Yeah, Not they for- hired. Didn't they? Uh, I thought they made their pivot already. Formally? I thought so. Um, I can't remember who it was. I know that they had Cliff Kingsbury in, in their grasp, and then it never really came Luke to Getsy. be. That's they hired Luke Getze? They're nearing a deal to okay. hire him as the OC. I knew they had somebody that was in the ready to go after I, he left i don't think there's an open job then that makes any sense for him because the only other jobs that are available out there right now are the chargers and he's not going to get hired by um harbaugh. harbaugh no the saints and the seahawks i think that's it I think yeah, those are the three. i don't think the seahawks have named anybody so, so yeah. it's really just the saints like that's if you're going to get a job somewhere it's probably new orleans and i don't think there's any connection between I thought he they and the hired saints. one too I think. Well, there you go. Yeah, this cycle is all but complete. I do think the one thing with which you can quibble, though, about the enemy last season, Clint he had, so he had Sam Howell, well. yeah. and yet he still opted to throw the most passes in the league. There was no balance whatsoever. There wasn't even an attempt yeah, they to have the balance. Yeah, they had the worst defense in the NFL. Yeah, so to I mean. be fair, they were, I was going to say, they were losing a lot. <laughs> Coming up in about 15 minutes, can you win if your best players aren't also your leaders? It sounds like the Cardinals might be trying to find that out. We'll do that coming up at 12 o'clock. But next, 314-399-9646 is the Air Comfort Service text line for questions and answers here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. You've got questions. We may have the answers. Maybe it's PK and Ferrario's questions and answers on 101 ESPN. 
it's time for questions and answers. 314-399-9646 is the Air Comfort Service text line. Let's start with this from the 314. Guys, I just saw that it looks like Clayton Kershaw is returning to the Dodgers. What do you think of the move? I'm shocked that this was ever in question. I, he was never leaving. Like, I thought there was only two options for Clayton Kershaw. He's either returning to the Dodgers or maybe he was going to go to the Texas Rangers. And then the Rangers decided this offseason, we don't have any money to spend so we're not even going to bring back Jordan Montgomery, much less Clayton Kershaw. I would have been shocked if he didn't return to the Dodgers. And I also don't have any clue if he's going to be able to help them this year. Yeah. I, I think it's a smart move by them because the upside is there. It's like signing Tyler Malley, which we talked about during going into this offseason. Um, but I think that's the kind of expectation that you have for Clayton Kershaw at this point in his career is, hey, can you give us like 10 to 12 good starts this year? If you can, cool. We're good. Yeah, I, I wasn't shocked by it either. And I think you're right. I, I think it's a great quote unquote upside play um, because he's not going to be back to lease after the all-star break. And I mean, you saw last year, his body, his body really for the last four or five years, it feels like has been able to hold up throughout a full regular season. So if he can get back to being himself and recovers well from this injury, because this was a major shoulder injury, he recovers well from that and gets somewhat back to Clayton Kershaw and you have him available in the postseason, yeah, that's a huge win for the L.A. Dodgers. He's a depth piece, and what a wonderful depth piece to have. Yeah. You think about it at the beginning of this season as well. If there's one question, not really a question for the Dodgers, the fact that Bueller is obviously working his way back there too, but all told, the Dodgers right now, we understand. They're preparing the rotation. They're preparing the arms accordingly for the second half of the season, and that's when Kershaw could give them, as you said, BK, the 10 to 12 starts. From the 618, guys, UFC has a big deal with UFC. Why don't you guys discuss the big fights more often, like the pay-per-views? So... UFC is a tough sport for me specifically. I, I don't mind UFC. I've watched many of the big fights. I like boxing as well. Um, but when you talk about it on the radio, it can be difficult for two reasons. One, the people that are really into it will say that you're not talking about it the way that I want you to talk about it. Two, the people that aren't into it just immediately tune out. And so a lot of what I can only speak for myself, I do in terms of the programming side of things, I talk about what I think the biggest portion of you guys want to hear, which is Cardinals, blues local stuff nfl has a massive audience as much as there is frustration here in st louis understandably so in some regards based on what happened with our team um there is still a massive audience in st louis for the nfl uh mizzou illinois there's some audience although segmented for those two teams and so that's where it comes back to okay what is the greatest number of people that are interested in a topic the most number of you guys that are listening right now um are interested in the cardinals and after that, it's the Blues. So that's that's why MMA slash UFC uh, are not the biggest topic of conversation here on our show specifically. Uh, the, the audience for it, while big, is very segmented. And the people that are into it are super into it. And God bless you for it. There's just not enough of an audience there to be a regular piece of the show. And also, I am not a an expert by any stretch of the imagination on the subject and therefore like if i start talking about it and there are people that are actually into the sport that are like oh no bk i disagree it's just it's not worth it you so, look like a fighting one. expert though yeah you, know? you think so yeah you think you, so you look like you'd hold your own i can't do it because i just can't watch it i i can't watch those guys beat the crap out of each other i i just can't do it it just for whatever reason just makes me tense and i don't like watching the sport so when is McGregor coming back that's I what i'm yeah. worried about here I, he? I, could, I never watched a McGregor fight for how great he really? was 
I just can't do the sport. I, I can't do it where they're beating the living tar out of each other. Or is he just making movies now? Roadhouse remakes. That. I mean, I if you if you could make a living that way instead of getting your face beaten, I would recommend <laughs> doing that. From the six one eight guys, have you seen the report that the twenty twenty five Winter Classic will be Blues versus Blackhawks and Wrigley? And if so, what is your level of interest? I told T Bone this earlier today. I, I feel like for many of these at this point, I'm just like, okay, cool, that's gonna happen. That'll be the backdrop. Um, this one is really cool. I would love to go to this game. I I would be genuinely interested in seeing what the ticket prices will be. I'm sure they'll be astronomical with this game taking place at Wrigley Field. But if I have an opportunity to get tickets to this, I will absolutely try to take Luca uh, to a game at Wrigley between the Blues and the Blackhawks. I think that'll be awesome. I I know some think that the Winter Classic has kind of run its course at this point. I don't. I think it's really cool when it comes to your town. I understand if you're not interested in it in a national viewing perspective, like if it's Capitals versus Penguins, for example. As a Blues fan, am I going to tune in for that game? No, I'm not. But if I'm a Capitals or a Penguins fan and it's taking place at a stadium near me, yeah, I still think that's pretty cool to watch a hockey game outdoors. There's still a little bit of that that appeals to me. Yeah, I... I, I'm with you. Like, I would look at ticket prices. I, I would have interest in this, but I, I do think the Winter Classic has lost some of its kind of luster. Like, I, if I if I look at the ticket prices and I said, oh, yeah, just, yeah, too high. I'm, I'm not really, I'm not going to overextend myself because they're kind of repeating venues as well for the Winter Classic. I think it has lost some of its luster, but I do think this would be an exciting one to go to at Wrigley Field. I've been to a Cubs Cardinal or Cubs Cardinals game at Wrigley, and that was an awesome experience. So I think the if I got to see the other half of the Cardinal or the St. Louis Chicago rivalry and it's outdoors for hockey, yeah, I would sign up for that. To your point, Tanner, unofficially, I think it's becoming the Blackhawks Invitational. This would be the fourth opportunity for Chicago to actually play in this event. I look at it a bit differently next year in relation to it really would be, for all intents and purposes, a national kind of coming out party on that stage for Connor Bedard. I like it. I think that you have the national profile there, and it's something around which you can build more of a storyline. Yeah, unless they're bad, in which case, like, nobody's going to watch because it's a bad team on national television that just isn't typically right. And I I wouldn't expect the Blackhawks to be good next year, but it'll be fun. It'll be fun. And that sometimes sports can just be fun. It doesn't have to be anything more. I think that's what all-star games are now. Uh, so all the all the talk over the weekend about how terrible the Pro Bowl was, it was fun. My, li- my wife loved watching the Pro Bowl games. How much did she watch? The whole thing. Woo! The entire thing. We had it on the background. Like, it wasn't like we were sitting down breaking down the... Oh, you weren't, like, drawing plays with them? <laughs> yeah, Gardner Minshew's ability to participate in the quarterback challenge. Like, we weren't breaking down his form during it, but... It was fun. The guys show a little bit of personality. We had a good time watching it. We had it on the background. Like the NHL skills competition. I, it's fun. Baseball. The All-Star Weekend is fun. The, the game, it's the only one that actually resembles a regular season game. And the NBA has kind of fixed their All-Star game with the way that they've done the point system in the fourth quarter. The e- Elon ending? Elon, Elon ending? ending. Mm-hmm. I think it's perfect. Like it's it's a way to make it somewhat competitive. Is it? Is it ever going to be what it once was? No. And we just have to acknowledge that. Sometimes things can just be kind of fun. No. No. Coming up next, can you win if your best players aren't also your best leaders? Seems like the Cardinals might be trying to find out. We'll talk about it next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast. Presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN.
it really is about guys being about the team. And they felt like they weren't enough guys who were truly about the team last year. And you're absolutely right if your first response to that is, well, that doesn't say a lot about the guys who were in there. I agree. And I think in some ways it's a challenge to the guys who were in there. I think John Mozeliak at winter warm-up was, was, was borderline saying he needs to see more from Paul Goldschmidt, more from Nolan Arenado. When you talk about adding all these leaders and saying, yeah, there was a void of that, that's pretty pretty big statement coming from the guy who went out and sought these players. I would say that's been my takeaway from the offseason as well. I think there's been a bit of an admission that, hey, we didn't have the kinds of leadership inside of that clubhouse that we thought we did when we signed or traded for Nolan Arenado and Paul Goldschmidt alongside Tanner Hendrickson and Bradford Bruns on Brandon Kylie. So T-Bone, when I heard that from Ben Fredrickson on the best podcast in baseball, I was just sitting over there nodding my head like, yep, uh-huh, yep, yep, that sounds about right. But then Derek Gould, I thought had an interesting retort on what the Cardinals do and do not need from Goldie and Arenado as leaders. Isn't it on you to recognize that that's not who they are? Like, isn't it on you to like, you know, we all know the the red light leaders, right? The ones who sound like leaders on camera and aren't um, when the red light goes off. Um, and we all know guys who may not sound like leaders on camera, but definitely are around the clubhouse. And they're not always the greatest players. They're not always the the one who leads in the stats. They're, they lead in another way. Um, but at some point in time, like, you know, this is a game – and this is a marketplace that pays for performance. That's statistical performance. And isn't asking somebody to then add a change in personality to that? Are you paying for that as well? Or should you know that you're not going to get it? Like, you know, like Nolan Arenado leads by play. Paul Goldschmidt, I talked to him at length about it. And he, he was like, he's more of a lead by example lead by positivity. Um, and that's not how Albert Pujols was as a leader. That's not how Yadier Molina was. Um, you know, that's probably closer to how Adam Wainwright try, is. Um, set an example, be positive, um, but also be demanding. And for Goldschmidt and Nolan Arenado this past year, you know, their performance, they struggled, especially Nolan Arenado. And he said at times, he said, it's really hard to ask for more from somebody when I'm not giving it myself. That doesn't feel right. So I understand where Nolan Arenado is coming from there. And it makes all the sense in the world, right? If you're struggling in your workplace, it like apply this. And it's hard because sports are different than our own workplaces. I want to say that on the front end, but apply it to your own workplace for a second. If we could set that aside, when you're struggling, when you're underwater and you're like, dude, I have seven different things on my desk that I have to get done by the end of the day. It is hard to then go to the person that works for you and say, what can I do to help you? No, I need to get my stuff done first and then I can go help you, right? It's kind of like on the airplane where they say whenever you're getting ready to take off, hey, before you put the mask on your, your child, put the mask on yourself so then you can help your child. That is where the Cardinals were at last year. The, the plane had an emergency <laughs> landing, the masks dropped, and everybody was trying to put their own on. And man, a lot of them just couldn't figure out how to put it around their face. That was where Nolan Arenado was. So I get that to a degree. That being said, man, at a certain point in time, we've been in this for a few years now with Nolan Arenado and Paul Goldschmidt as the leaders of this team. They had Albert Pujols. They had Yadier Molina. They had Adam Wainwright that could be there as the backstops. Where if anything went wrong, this is the Cardinals way. We are here to show you our way of doing things. 
And we heard a lot, a lot about how much Albert Pools helped the young players in his first season back here in St. Louis. I've heard less of that about Arenado. Now, Goldie, I think, is a true lead-by-example guy. I've seen it on the field when we're out there pregame, T-Bone, where Goldie is showing guys the like very specific steps of how to land on first base or how to land on second to be able to cut the bag as quick as humanly possible. Like Those are the kinds of things you'll get from Paul Goldschmidt. But what it sounds like from everything we have heard this offseason is that they need more leadership in the room. They need guys to have uncomfortable conversations other than just forcing that upon the manager of the team. It's got to be taken care of by the players. And if that's not going to be Nolan Arenado, that's not going to be Paul Goldschmidt. I do wonder what that means for the team. Can you have a great team where your best players aren't those individuals inside of that clubhouse? T-Bone, where do you come out on that? I think you can still have a great team without having the best players be the best leaders because I, I think the number one thing that you need from your best players is for them to perform on the field as the best players. The whole leadership aspect in the locker room, I do think there is some importance to it, but I don't think it's the thing that determines whether or not you go from being an 85-win team or in last year's case, you're a 71-win team. I think the issue last year was more of they didn't have pitching. Their defense didn't play well. I don't think it was a leadership issue. I think there were some guys in that locker room that did cause some problems. But I think you can get past that if you're a winning baseball team. You know, if if they were a 90-win team last year, I don't think we talk about the whole Contreras getting benched and the pitchers pointing fingers at him as much. We talk about it in the moment, but it's not something that we continue to go back on now that we're in February of 2024. And So I, I don't think that you need to have your best players be your best leaders as well. I think you need your best players to be the best players on the field. Whoever ends up being that number one leader guy in the clubhouse, I don't really care who it is. I don't care if it's the 26th man on the <laughs> roster and Matt Carpenter. Hell, I don't care if it's the bench coach and Daniel Descalso. Long as there is somebody that takes on that leadership role, I think you're in a good spot. I think the biggest thing for the best players is they've got to be the best player on the field. And what happened last year, Goldie and Arnado were not the best players on the field for the St. Louis Cardinals. I think there's, first of all, totally agree with what you're saying there that the on-field product is what matters more and this is what i always talk about with alex of like for the blues does it matter if you have a good locker room of course it does of course but the prerequisite of that is that you have talent yeah if, if you're not a talented team if you don't have the players in place to be able to go win it doesn't matter if you have a good locker room or not get the players in that have the right mentalities and if you do the locker room will take care of itself eventually and yes like clubhouse is a super fragile thing and it it can go the wrong way if you get a couple too many bad apples in there but when you've got good leadership you could take a, a one or two guys that you're like hey in certain other situations this guy might not work but here we think we can handle it and i think the cardinals might be one of those teams right now that like in the past really last year i, I don't think they could handle it like tyler o'neill wasn't a problem prior to last year in the way that he was last year at least like his his stuff that comes along with being Tyler O'Neill was it frustrating for people inside of the clubhouse? I'm sure it was at times, but it got taken care of, and it wasn't something that translated onto the field. I think last year it did. I think he yeah. carried a lot of that stuff last year onto the field with him, and that is where it became magnified early in the season when he was called out by the manager publicly. That didn't just randomly happen. That had been brewing and building and building and building and boom, suddenly there's a moment in time where it costs them a run and everybody gets frustrated and it becomes a public story for the next 24 hours. So 
I think Brendan Donovan is a really good leader. I, I think that dude talks with, like, has the conversations that we're talking about here. I also think it can be a little difficult when you don't have that guy as your best player. I, I do think this matters. I do. I, I think if you don't have your best players holding other guys accountable, the ceiling for the team is taken down a, a bit. That doesn't mean you can't win that way. But I do think it takes from being like a potential great team to a potential good team. And maybe there is only a slight difference between the two, but I think we might be watching that difference. How many times last year did we hear Nolan Arenado say something to the effect of, man, we're a really young team. T-Bone, I remember you and I looking around in the locker room like, you're not though. I'm looking around this clubhouse right now. This is not a very young team. Your lineup is full of guys that are veterans for the most part. Yes, you have a couple of younger pieces, but the core group of this team is not young. Look to the bullpen. It's not young. Look to the rotation. It's freaking old. Like, I don't understand what Nolan Arnato is talking about here. And maybe he feels that because he can feel certain guys on the position player side of things coming to him for answers. And so I guess I could see how that would be frustrating to a degree. But I think that's a big part of what this offseason has been. And this is pure speculation by me. I think the Cardinals heard Nolan say time and time and time and time again, we are young. And they said, okay, let's go get veterans then. If you're unhappy because everybody in this locker room, according to you, is really young, let's go find the veterans. And let's just like, we're taking this away as an excuse because we don't think it is an explanation. We think as a team, it is an excuse. And I think this year they're trying to eliminate that variable from the equation. And I think you're right on that. And this is the part that I just don't like fully comp. Maybe I don't fully comprehend it. But if I'm a player, for example, say I'm a Mason Wynn who's in his rookie year. If I'm going through some struggles at the plate, the first person I want to go talk to is those guys in Goldie and Arnato. Exactly. I don't want to be passed off to Matt Carpenter because Arnato's got to focus on his own thing. You know, I don't want to go talk. Sure, Matt Carpenter is going to be a good guy to be kind of a soundboard to have conversations with. But man, he's not in his prime. He's not in his prime anymore. He's not the same guy he was six years ago when he was hitting like fifty doubles for the Cardinals. I still want to go to Arnato and Goldie. And now I almost feel like it is like no, 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 no. no. I brought him into. You go talk to him. <laughs> you talk to him, not me. So that's the way I kind of feel about it. And to your question uh, or to your point of a good team, maybe this is a separation between a great and a good team. I, I, I would point this to the St. Louis Blues. We agree Vladdy was the best player on that team for a big stretch of their run, right, for their success. Vladdy was never their top leader on that team. Uh, I mean, when they were winning, I would say the best player on the team was Ryan O'Reilly. I, I would say okay, that's fair. I I would ar- I would argue Vladdy because Vladdy was still the goal scorer and was like the guy and was still the star of the St. Louis Blues. Or- I feel like that's like calling the best. Like I feel like that's calling Nolan Gorman the best player on the Cardinals. Like he yes, he's the best run producer. He's the guy that's going to hit the most home runs this season for the Cardinals. I he is not the best two way player, and I I don't feel like Vladdy was ever the best two all, all around player on the Blues. I guess that's fair. during the I- run where they were winning. But but what I was gonna say is like I view whether you view him as the guy or the second guy like he was not a I didn't never viewed him as a leader sure. and the Blues never had an issue with separating from good and great I don't think I like and even before O'Reilly like Vladdy was the guy and sure they didn't end up winning the Stanley Cup but they were really good teams and, and I I'd I mean, look at they him also, they they also had other guys though too on those teams but that he you're wasn't the best well. pl- but they weren't the best players what I'm saying. Is that Vladdy was the star for the St. Louis Blues. He was on the cover of an NHL video game. Sure. 
and I never viewed him as like a leader. So that's where I say like I can't say like that's an issue. And for I think the that's Cardinals. what I would say though is I would say those teams were good, not great. The teams that you're discussing for the most part were good. They were really good, and at times we thought they had the potential to be great. They never became great. And the reason why they never achieved as much as we all hoped that they would, at least in part, I believe, is because they didn't have what we're talking about. They didn't have the Ryan O'Reilly's inside of the locker room. And I'm not telling you that, like, you just sign a guy because he's a good leader. Like, you need an excellent player who also happens to have those qualities. And if you have that on your team, now you're talking about a great team. Like, last year, look, look at the best players on the Rangers. I, I think Marcus Simeon was one of the leaders of that team. I think Seager is considered to be one of the leaders of that team. You look at the rotation that they had, like their best guys were their leaders as well. And you look at the Dodgers, what what changed for them when they were able to finally get over the top? Their best they had players. had a 60-game season. Sure, but their best players were also their best leaders. Like I, I just genuinely believe that there is something to this. I don't think it's the end-all be-all. And I think if Nolan Arenado and Paul Goldschmidt return to the form that you're talking about with them being great players on the field again this year, the Cardinals can still be really, really, really good. I do think that there's something to this, though, of, hey, if there's not more leadership there to be had, that could be one of the reasons why the Cardinals let Goldie walk. It could be one of the reasons why at the end of this season, they look at the Nolan Arenado experience and say to themselves, is it better for us to reallocate that money? I'm not telling you they will, they should, they anything like that, but... All of these are breadcrumbs of, hey, maybe this isn't working the way the Cardinals hoped that it would. Um, I, I just, I find it all to be really interesting. And the offseason that they have had when it comes to them saying on every player that was signed, not one, not two, every single position player or starter that was signed and brought in to have a role on this team was brought in with the expressed statement of leadership. Leadership is part of why they're here. That's not by accident, dude. And the guys that were seen to be your leaders in that clubhouse a year ago, when they're saying at every turn, we needed more leadership. We signed this guy to have more leadership inside of that clubhouse. It doesn't speak highly of the leadership that was already inside of that clubhouse. There's no other way for me to read that. And I agree with that. I, I think it's an overcorrection by the Cardinals. And I think it's, to be frank, excuse making. I, I think that's what it was. I, I think it was excuse making by the Cardinals of, you know, we're not good because we just don't have leadership. No, you weren't good because you didn't have pitching. You you didn't have talented pitchers in your rotation. I think last they year. were terrible terrible because of that. I think what their hope is, their belief is, is can we be great with better leadership? And I think one of the things that we might be missing here is I don't think you can be great because of leadership from the twenty sixth man. I don't think that can happen. Could be wrong here, but I think you need your best dudes to be leaders. I do. If you're going to be a great team that is capable of winning a World Series, I think that is something that needs to be in place. And we'll see. We'll see if Arenado and Goldie are capable of that. I think Goldie is. I do. I think we've heard too many stories from too many players, from too many people that are around the team on a day-to-day -day basis of his leadership. I don't know on Nolan. It's not me calling him out or anything like that. I just, there's a lot of stuff here, breadcrumbs that you can follow from one place to another that would seem to indicate the Cardinals don't seem to know either. And, and that that's a that is a massive storyline heading into the 2024 and, season. And this is where I have a tough time separating this is like if the if the Cardinals won a World Series this year, big if. I, I'm not gonna suddenly go, oh, it's because it was they were they Goldie and Arnado were great and Arnado was suddenly a leader. I, I just think it's because those guys were great. I don't think it has anything to deal with leadership in the clubhouse. I think it can be both.
I, I think I don't. But like, would this? Would we really change our tone a year from now if they win a World Series? That Arnado went from suddenly being this massive question mark of leadership. It depends on if there's if there's examples of that leadership. Then yeah, absolutely. I think you would have to change your tune. I think some people can develop into leaders. I disagree with the idea of like you're either born a leader or you're not. I do think there are people that grow into that role within the organization. Like I think. I think it's also possible Brendan Donovan leaves the season and we're like, hey, he's one of your best players and he's one of your best leaders. And if that ends up being the case and we hear a bunch of examples of him holding guys accountable, like, yeah, I will absolutely say, you know what, they found the leadership that they were missing. Or if we hear from a bunch of different people within the clubhouse, hey, these are examples A, B, C, D, and F of uh, Nolan Arenado holding guys accountable, keeping this thing on the rails over the course of the season. Yeah, if there's specific examples of that, how could I not give him the credit that he is due? I, I I think that, but you need that. You can't just apply something to somebody without having any evidence of of that taking place. And that's what I'd be doing right now if I told you that I thought Arenado was like the leader, and it wasn't. It, last year had nothing to do with him. I I can't speak to that because the Cardinals seem to be indicating at every turn. That's not the case. Coming up in about 15 minutes, which team deserves more credit for the way that they acquired their quarterback? The 49ers or the Chiefs? We'll get into that coming up at 1230. In or out coming up next. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Come on, man. Are you in or are you out? It's in or out with PK and Ferrario. is the air comfort service x line for in or out you give us a scenario we will tell you if we are in or out here on bk and ferrario t-bone in or out within the next five years opening weekend of the nfl will have a game on every night between thursday and monday night did you see the news yesterday yeah where they're doing a game on friday they're doing a game in brazil opening weekend on friday night they've already got the thursday they've got the friday they've got the sunday all day long and then they've got the double header typically on that monday night are we gonna get a saturday game at some point See, i'm gonna say no i'm out on this i don't think they'll go into saturdays to fight with college football i think now where it's gonna get interesting is when the college football playoff now that it's expanded is gonna have to compete with the nfl which (laughs) mistake um i I don't think, because there's kind of like a, whatever you want to call it, a handshake agreement that the NFL avoids Saturdays until the college football regular season gets done. I think they'll continue with that. So I would say I'm out on this, but I love them going to an opening game for Friday. And I hope that the way they do this, I don't necessarily care if it's international or not, but I hope, you know, we always get the opening game as the champion. I hope that opening game on Friday is the team that came in second, the NFC or AFC winner that didn't win the Super Bowl. I'm in for sure. You said in the next five years. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I don't buy for one second that the handshake backdoor agreement is going to last for the duration of the next few years. I don't see any reason as to why it won't happen. And I know maybe this is apples to oranges, but college football has been intriguing upon different days of the week now for the last several seasons. So all of these things are subject to, you know, I mean, no, absolutely. I mean, come on. I think I'm in as well. I think that they eventually do something on Saturdays. I don't know what it'll look like. My guess is the way that they do it is they do another international game and they just sell it as, hey, we aren't going to put the international game at 7 a.m. on Sunday. Although I could see that too, where they're going on Sundays (laughs) from like 9 a.m. until basically 1030 p.m. And they've just got all day on Sunday. They've got a doubleheader on Monday. They've got a Thursday night game and they've got a Friday night game. I 
the entire weekend is just going to be full of NFL slots because these could be streaming opportunities. That's what this is. They'll just sell it as, hey, we're getting streaming opportunities. Amazon, you want another game? Cool. Peacock, you want to stream this Saturday morning game for us between the Colts and the Jaguars? Great. We've got you an opportunity right here. It'll be a billion dollars for this streaming opportunity for you for the next 20 years on Saturday morning, week one. And BK, as the commissioner says, you, the subscriber, get all of this great additional content on top of it. That's the key. Thanks, Roger. That was amazing. That was absolutely (laughs) incredible. T-Bone, what do you got for us? Guys, in or out, we talked about the Pocota projections earlier today. Cardinals projected to win the Central at 85 and a half wins. In or out, the Chicago Cubs are the biggest threat to the Cardinals in the NL Central. And I believe that. I think the Cubs are the only team outside of the Cardinals that can win this division. Not believe it in the good old Reds, huh? I'm in on this one as well because I think the Cubs have the most representative rotation from start to finish as well. I'm not buying right now. Cincinnati has a lot of great young talent. That's nice. Aside from Hunter Green, do you actually think that these guys, one, are going to be healthy at the beginning of the season and then sustain that throughout the rest of the year? We know that Milwaukee is taking Freddie Peralta into opening day as the starter. No, I think the Cubs, both lineup-wise and with the arms, notwithstanding the bullpen, absolutely could push the Cardinals the most. Yeah, I, I would agree with you guys. I, I think I'm in on this. I think Cincinnati is going to be interesting. Um, if their rotation stays healthy and those guys start to take some steps forward, I think they could become the biggest threat. i just not sure they're there yet. I, I think Chicago is still going to add Bellinger back. It, it just screams like— I do like, have some questions about their offense. I, I do too, especially without Bellinger. And I, But I think they're going to bring him back. But even then, there were some questions around the offense last year. So I, I would say I'm in on this. And as we know, the Reds have no leadership, so they can't win. Guys, tonight, Connor McDavid Joey Votto and... being gone and not being yeah, the best exactly. player anymore is a big deal for them. Swinging it to the NHL, the Oilers tonight could match the 92-93 pins for the longest winning streak in NHL history. In a route, though, Edmonton emerges as the Western Conference champion. Uh, out because they don't have a goalie. <laughs> or leadership. I know that their goalie has actually played really well recently. Like, he's, he's suddenly starting to perform. Skinner, right? Um, I... Don't trust that in a postseason series at all. I think they'll continue to do what they have done in recent seasons, which is have a very good regular season, get to the playoffs. They realize, oh, bleep, we didn't get a goalie again. And then they'll lose in five, six, seven games in the Western Conference Finals. I still don't want to mess around with Vegas, Colorado. When you're talking about McKinnon, the offense could explode at any given time. West is very tough near the top. Vancouver, like who's the best goalie right now in the West in the playoff picture? Because I, I, I'm in, or I'm out, because I agree with what you said. Like, I don't trust their goalie. But, like, is there an argument to be had like Benner right now? If you look at the current playoff picture. You're in the picture. Is the best goalie in the Western Conference. Just based on what we have seen so far this year, I think the answer is probably Aiden Hill. He's been unbelievable um, for Vegas in his short sample size. Connor Hellebuck. Hellebuck might be the answer, honestly. Yeah. That's probably the guy. He's but- probably one. If you're answer, if you're talking about like including in previous history of playoff success, yeah, I mean I'll take Benner over just about anybody in the playoffs. That's the thing is, it's kind of hard to have this conversation about Jordan Bennington because his, his regular season stats almost don't even matter for me. Like I just get him to the playoffs and he'll be your Jock Peterson and it'll be great. Yeah, yeah, I, I I'm out and I I think looking at the West, like I I think you're right. I don't trust their goaltending. And now that I'm like kind of thinking about it. Ottinger and Dallas, you mentioned Hellebuck. I, I can't see them getting through the West. They they remind me of like 
I don't even know if they're a good comp, but like the Pacers where they had like Paul George was like, whoa, this team's really good in the regular season. And then they happened to run into like somebody really good named LeBron and a really good team that knows how to win. And then they just went home every year in the playoffs. And that's what Edmonton kind of reminds me of. Yeah, I, I just the Western Conference at the top is very good this season that the comp would be Colorado, who won the cup with a bunch of also rans in net for them. That would be the comparison for what Edmonton would have to do this season. They just win with dominant offense and pretty good defense, and they just blitzkrieg everybody they go up against. And that's too much to be able to overcome when it comes to your goalie. The best defense is playing offense all game long. But I, in a playoff series, do I trust that they'll be able to do that for seven games? I don't. I don't. Tanner, I've got another NBA comp for you, actually. Think about the Stoudemire Nash Suns. Very, very reminiscent in that way. All offense, all the time. Yep. 314-399-9646 is the Air Comfort Service X line for in or out. If you've got a scenario, you give us on the you give it to us on the text line, we'll tell you if we're in or out here on BK and Ferrario. This one comes from the 314. Guys, in or out. The way Nolan Arenado left Colorado, people should have known that he is more about his own performance than he is about leadership. Uh, I'm out on that because I don't think that was about his performance because he was still performing well in Colorado. That was because he saw that they didn't want to win as an organization. And I don't think there was any denying that. I mean, they've always operated as like, hey, we can have one big contract and then we'll kind of piece it together. Look at what they're doing now with Chris Bryant. And that contract's been a disaster. Mm. So I would say I'm out on this. I don't think that was like a personal, like, I'm upset. I'm not playing well. It's because I'm in the Coors effect. No, I think it was, hey, I can see now, now that I've gotten my smarts about me, I can see this organization doesn't give a bleep about winning, and I want to go be playing for a winner. So I'm I'm out out on this. I'm out on this, but I do think there is some piece of, some nugget of truth in it, so to speak. I think sometimes we just, like, push away any negatives that could have possibly come with the player when they become your player, when they come from somewhere else and they are now yours. It's like, oh, that won't be a problem here. If it's a problem for you, it's not going to be a problem here. Remember when Marquez Valdez-Scantling signed with the Chiefs and Packers fans were like, ha, good luck with that one. It's like, oh, it's fine. He's playing with Patrick Mahomes. What could possibly go wrong? We've seen it. There's a lot that could go wrong with him. Uh, or when, for example, Wilson Contreras, last year, you get to the trade deadline, two, two years ago, I suppose, you get to the trade deadline, nobody will trade for him as a catcher. They will only trade for him as a designated hitter or an outfielder. And it's like when he signs with the Cardinals, oh, that's okay, it'll be fine. He's going to be working with the Cardinals. They had Yadier Molina for 20 years. They'll certainly know how to get the best out of him behind the plate defensively. They'll be able to get him up to speed. Well, obviously, there was a lot more of a learning curve there than what the Cardinals were anticipating. So I think the same could be true for Nolan, where is he like the most difficult person in the world? No, I I don't think that's the case. But I do think there is some stuff there that maybe the Cardinals weren't previously aware of, anticipating or expecting in in St. Louis because they expected, hey, all of that's going to change when he feels what what it's like to win here in St. Louis, and I don't know that it has. And I think, and I've mentioned this a couple of times, I feel like this week and last week, and I think that what happened there to that point was the Cardinals said, hey, he'll be happy because we're winning and getting to the playoffs. And I think what they didn't realize was Arnado was, he doesn't want to just win the Central. Arnado has the same fight that Ollie has, and I want to go win a World Series. I want a World Series on my resume. Well, Mo and the front office and ownership are, hey, he should be yeah. happy. 85 wins can win the Central. Oh, sign us up. 
And then they just point to Arizona from last year and say, yeah. that could be us. Yeah. We, we could do that. All right, from the 314, guys, in or out, there are at least five future red jackets on the Cardinals right now. Ooh. That's an interesting one. Um, Matt Carpenter will and should be a future red jacket member, mm-hmm. in my opinion. Agreed. Other locks. Would you say that because he won an MVP here, Goldie is a lock to be a red jacket member? I would. I would. But I would hear the argument for some people that would say no. What about Nolan Arenado? He's different for me. I don't think he's a lock yet. TBD. Yeah. Would Would you project yes or no on those two? Yes for Goldie. I would project yes on Goldie. I truly don't know about Arnado. I would think yes, based on what I, I saw too. in Katie Wu's uh, fan survey of like, she, I think she had a question of like, do you, what do you, what is your hope of Arnado bouncing back and Goldie bouncing back? And everybody said like, yes, there was no like, I'm giving up on him. So I would say yes. I think those three. I think so too. I would add Jordan Jordan Walker <laughs> as a projected potential Red Jacket member. I know that's getting way out over our skis, but I, I probably would have him in this category. Bingo. And if you were to put a fifth, who would be your projection on the fifth? Because I think I'm out. Like, I would say pro- my answer would be no. I'm, I'm out on this. But if you were to have a fifth Red Jacket member on this upcoming season's team, for you, who would it be, T-Bone? Oh, man. That is tough because I don't know who the other I don't look. Newt Bar. It would be Newt Bar probably. Interesting. I, if Newt Bar ends up staying healthy and kind of piece it together, I mean, he's going to be an all-around outfielder. Plays defense, has some power, and we've seen the popularity, and it comes down to voting from the fans. So I would probably say Newbar would be my favorite. I was going to go fifth. Donovan for a lot of those same reasons that you were just discussing. Like, he's got the leadership qualities. I, I'm not trying to get too stuck on leadership today. It's like been the theme of our 12 o'clock hour. But Donovan, from the leadership perspective, he plays the quote-unquote hard nine that Cardinals fans love. He's got all the defensive versatility. If that dude has a couple of playoff moments, that, that's the biggest thing is whoever the guy is that we're going to put as the fifth member, it it will come down. Did they have a moment or two in the in the postseason, like big time moments that led to a World Series? Hey, um, so if, I, I think Donovan has those kind of qualities. If you're putting Walker in the mix, why not? Let's project way ahead. If you end up getting and benefiting from your first transcendent shortstop in about 20 or so years, I'll go Mason Wynn. Why not? I like, I like him. him. He's know, Bradford Bruns. You know who has an interesting case real quick is Wilson Giovanni Gallegos. Oh. Because like Gio's like been one of the best relievers since the Cardinals acquired him. I think you can only him. make it if you end up getting being a closer for a really long time. That's the thing is like I feel like he won't get it, but like he's been awesome ever since becoming a St. Louis. Also, Cardinal. I would say more fans have a negative opinion right now on well, Gio than you positive. You wait till he's an All Star this year, fan base. We've got a lot of people that are saying Lance Lynn. I. I mean, he was really good his first time around. But the second act will have to determine everything. I think he would have to win a World Series this year. Like, I, the, In the next two years, he would have to be a big part of them winning a World Series. And if he does, I, sure, yeah, you can you could put him into that criteria. But I, the, the bar to clear is just so high for a pitcher here in St. Louis to, to become a Red Jacket member. I, I'd be surprised. Um, but I'm not going to say no. I'm not going to, like, a definitive no. I don't think that's fair for me. All right, coming up next, which team deserves more credit for the way that they acquired their quarterback, the 49ers or the Chiefs? We'll talk about it next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast, presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. 
the 49ers had no intention of Brock Purdy doing what he's done, right? They had Trey Lance. That was supposed to be their guy. And Brock Purdy was, you know, a developmental prospect that could eventually step in if something were to go off the rails with Trey Lance. But that was more of a shot in the dark, whereas there was a clear plan. You don't see teams that are picking in the back half of the first round take those huge types of swings. But it was clear that they had some kind of conviction on Pat Mahomes, and they saw something that nobody else saw. So that was Chris Canty on Unsportsmanlike, which you can hear weekdays right here on 101 ESPN prior to the opening drive. Our girl Michelle Smallman on that show as well. I agree with what he's saying there. Obviously, who am I going to be to disagree with it? The team that deserves more credit for the way they acquired their quarterback is very clearly the Kansas City Chiefs. But if we want to get into the nitty gritty of this, kind of change it up a little bit, I think the team that I would look to as like the model for other teams of, hey, how do you make this work when you have that quarterback? I do think that there is something to be said for the way that the 49ers drafted, developed, and put their quarterback into a position to succeed. Now, the Chiefs had that as well, but it's hard to recreate Tyreek Hill and Travis Kelsey. Like, okay, take the tight end in the third round who has some injury history, will not play in his rookie year, and then will become the best tight end in the history of football. Take Tyreek Hill in the fifth round who has this pretty rough past, and you've got to go through that entire PR situation and honestly the bad look of taking a player with Tyreek Hill's past and then transition him from wide receiver or from running back to wide receiver. And then I bet you by the end of year one, people look at him as the next Antonio Brown because that's what he essentially is right now with who he is as a player. He's Antonio Brown, but with better speed, that's really tough to accomplish though. What the 49ers did is they put in place a great offensive play caller with Debo Samuel, who is a unique wide receiver, and everybody knew that coming out of college, Brandon Ayuk as a first-round wide receiver, traded for Christian McCaffrey, drafted an athletic freak in George Kittle, and then in all of this, they kept throwing darts at the quarterback position, man. What the 49ers deserve credit for is, first, they went out and acquired via trade Jimmy Garoppolo midseason. Nobody trades for a quarterback midseason. The 49ers did. Then they tried to go get their upside play with Trey Lance. It didn't work out. They knew it almost immediately that it wasn't going to work. And then they decided to continue throwing darts. Yes, it's a late round pick, but they continue throwing darts at the quarterback position. They get Brock Purdy into the building. They recognize early on, hey, this guy's better than Trey Lance, and they give him the shot. That's where I will give a lot of credit to the 49ers is they just kept trying. They just kept looking for the next answer at the quarterback position that is where the credit, I believe, goes for the 49ers. Yeah, I, I would give them some credit to that because I, I think they did approach it right because I think when they traded for Jimmy Garoppolo, I think they knew just kind of like we did at the time. Eh, maybe not because they acquired him from New England. I I think they viewed pretty quickly on that, hey, this is just the stopgap guy. And I think teams do need to go through a period of that. Like, look at what Tampa Bay is doing. Past. The Chiefs did the same thing. Yeah, you got to get to a certain level of adequate let me at least evaluate my roster. Because when you have a terrible quarterback like Sam Howell this year for the uh, Commanders, you can't even evaluate the guys around him. Yeah. Because you're just doing stuff that isn't NFL caliber. Yeah, you need to be able to evaluate the roster that you have in place. And I think the same is true for like the Atlanta Falcons with Desmond Ritter and Heineke this year, to where you need at least someone that's adequate. Go through that stopgap period. Maybe you do end up winning a playoff round and you get some playoff experience under your belt. And then you got to go and take that step to go get the quarterback. And the reason that I I would say like I like the Chiefs 
point of this rather than the 49ers are just throwing darts at the board. That's not sustainable because a lot of teams that will throw darts at the board, the GM won't be around for when the dart actually lands. Uh, So I would say the Chiefs did it right because they traded up, they got their guy in the first round, and the 49ers lucked into Brock Purdy. Whether you want to say they evaluated him as Mr. Irrelevant, that's fine. But I don't even think when they drafted him they thought he was going to be the guy because they made their trade for Trey Lance, misevaluated what Trey Lance was going to be, and let's be honest, John Lynch and Kyle Shanahan should be thankful Purdy did develop because otherwise those guys would be the unemployment line. And the valuable piece of it was they already had the roster in place where somebody like a Brock Purdy can succeed. They've got the coach, they've got the weapons, they've got everything in place to be like, okay, even if this guy is not as skilled as Trey Lance, we thought he was going to be, he can succeed here because just get the ball in the hands of your playmakers and go make it work from there. And that's one of the lessons from all of the teams that remained in conference championship weekend. Chiefs, Ravens, Lions, 49ers, they all threw weapons, as many weapons onto the field as they possibly could. Now, the Chiefs this year were different, and they didn't have the guys that ended up stepping up. But they threw resources at it, man. They tried with Kadarius Tony. They tried to sign Marquez Valdez-Scantling to a decent deal. They tried to be able to rehab um, the the guy, Ross, from Clemson, who had a foot injury, was a first-round pick potentially before that, and they rehabbed him all of last season. It just hasn't quite worked, Justin Ross, the way that they expected it to. They have a lot of players out there. Rasheed Rice, they drafted in the second round. McCole Hardman previously drafted in the second round. It just hasn't worked for them. Ravens threw a bunch of resources at the wide receiver position. Lions, 49ers, same thing. But T-Bone, you said something in the office that I found to be interesting. Forget just the receivers, the running backs. There's another position that you look at and you say to yourself, maybe this is the new thing that teams need to unlock before they can become a legitimate contender. Yeah, when we look at offenses, I I always agree. You need to have weapons around the quarterback because – that's what can take the quarterback's game to the next level. The one spot, though, that I say is like a must for a team now, like if you're going to go take the next step and become a Super Bowl caliber contending team, the one thing that you have to have on your roster outside the quarterback for me offensively is a elite tight end or or a tight end that can take his game to the next level in the postseason because tight ends create such matchup problems because you didn't have to force a linebacker in to try and go out and cover a tight end in man-to-man, which is very tough. So I look at all the teams that were in the conference finals. They are in the conference championship game. Right. They all had great tight ends. Travis Kelsey for the Chiefs, Baltimore, Mark Andrews. Honestly, Isaiah Likely is probably going to fall into that category as he gets uh, more experience in the NFL. You look at the NFC, Sam Laporta was a great tight end. You look at uh, the San Francisco 49ers, they've got George Kittle, a great tight end. I think you have to have a really good tight end now to have success in the NFL and go on a postseason run because they are just such offensive nightmares. They're tough to scheme against. Who's going to be able to slow down Travis Kelsey? I can tell you, that is probably the number one thing Steve Wilkes is trying to figure out today. Not how does he slow down Patrick Mahomes. How does he keep the ball out of the hands of Travis Kelsey? And that's really hard to figure out. So I think the tight end spot has become like a, you have to have a elite pass-catching tight end to go on a deep playoff run. And and I yeah, specifically the tight ends, BK, who can stretch the field. The days of obviously that inline blocker guy are long gone. But in this particular Super Bowl matchup, you have not only Kelsey, but Kittle himself has been given his flowers by Kelsey and many more because of the way in which he can impact the game, not just as a blocker, but a secondary intermediate threat. And Tanner, you are absolutely right. So many of the playoff participants, period, we saw those contributions from this position, a position that just continues to evolve. Yeah, I was going to take it a different direction. I, I would say you just need somebody that can win over the middle of the field. 
Like, it doesn't necessarily have to be a tight end, although they are matchup nightmares because of the size and the speed that they bring to the table. But you go back a couple of years at the, the AFC Championship game, you had the Bengals make it each of the past two seasons. They were not a team that had a great tight end on either of those two teams, but they did have somebody in Jamar Chase that wins across the middle of the field. You look at the Rams that ended up going to the Super Bowl that year as well. They didn't necessarily have a stud tight end that you can point to, but Cooper Cup was their de facto tight end. They used him as a blocker, not in line, but they would motion him in and have him as the pin where somebody else was going to pull out of it. That's essentially the role, if you will, of being a tight end. Robert Woods was one of the guys that they used in that capacity as well. So as long as you have somebody that can win across the middle, you can get away with not having that elite level tight end, but you better have that role locked up. And every team that remained this year, last year, the year before, they all had somebody that was able to play in that capacity. Coming up next, the juncture here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Into the junk drawer, Tibor. What do you got for us today? BK, have you ever done a food eating competition? Whether it be like at a fair or just like when the family's no, together, you guys just do the, one. What we did with the Capri Sun, where I sucked that bad boy down in like seven seconds, broke uh-huh. the world record. Nobody was there to see it, of course. It, it is on video, so if you want to check it out, you can do that. I think it's somewhere on YouTube, somewhere, maybe Twitter. Didn't it get um, beat pretty quickly after that? No, 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 definitely not. I I am still for sure, no doubt about it, absolutely the record holder for fastest consumed Capri Sun ever. But that's that's it. That's the only competition that I've ever entered. I've done I've done a family one before where we did uh, White Castle mini cheeseburgers as a contest. Uh, My family wants to do another one with donuts. Um, I don't know if I'm in on that or not, but the reason I bring this up, if you had to do one, what would be your food? That's exactly what I was going to ask you because I. I think I I would probably want to do I guess it would be I would do cheeseburgers. That's the one I did. I, I I think cheeseburgers were fine. I didn't have too big of an issue with it. Like I don't want something that is like extremely warm, like a donut, a hot glazy donut. Oh, no. I don't want to be Where, scarfing are a you million just going of those down. Straight to like the crispy cream or what Yeah. Okay. That that's what they want to do. They want to go when the hot sign's on and get a bunch right. of them. You... I would do pizza. Pizza would be my go-to. Oh, that's kind of greasy. Yeah, I mean, depending on where you go, potentially. But, yeah, I think that would be the one that I would go with. Still goes down the hatch rather easily. Did you guys ever do the carnival cookies in college? No. Boy, no. had some times at Mizzou with those, no doubt. <laughs> Not familiar. Not familiar with their work. And don't think that I want to be familiar with their work either. I, I would probably go pizza would be the number one choice for me. The, the problem is, like, if it goes poorly for you and it ends in a way that is uh, – with it coming back up, let's say, yeah. now you've ruined it. You, you yeah. don't want to do you, a food yeah. that you eat all the time. Like, I would never do tacos because I love tacos too much. And so I would I never, never want to be in dogs. a position where, <laughs> exactly, I would never want to be in a position where that is something that I can no longer even look at, much less eat. The, the reason I brought this up is I saw a story that Joey Chestnut, who is famous for doing unbelievable eating records, he was at a NLL game, which is National Lacrosse League, and at halftime they had an eating contest. He demolished over 100 mini donuts in the record time, which was about, uh, what was it, five minutes, I think is what That's it was. A hundred. I couldn't even imagine, like, just if I didn't have a timer that dude's eating a 100 treasure. donuts. We've talked oh. to him before on the show. It, he... He trains for stuff like that. It's amazing. That's Tanner Hendrickson. He's Bradford Bruns. I'm Brandon Kylie. In about 15 minutes, we'll get to better or forget it. But coming up next, 
In 2021, Jay Happ and John Lester saved the Cardinal season. Would you sign up this year for Lynn and Gibson to be for the Cardinals what Happ and Lester were in 21? We'll talk about it next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Alongside Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kylie. So Jay Happ and John Lester came in in 2021 and saved the Cardinals season, allowed them to have that big run to get into the postseason, convinced me, maybe you, that the Cardinals actually had a chance to do something special that postseason. And then, of course, it all came to a screeching halt in the postseason because that's kind of what happens with the Cardinals season. But those two guys at the back end of the Cardinals rotation really saved them in a massive way. And I don't know that any of us really anticipated that taking place. T-Bone, I remember at the deadline when they announced these moves, we had an extra hour of our show. I think the fast lane was doing a remote that day and then they had to come back in studio, if I'm not mistaken. And so we covered like two to three o'clock along with what we had on the show. And I remember the reaction to those moves was if I called it lukewarm, I think I would be being kind to what Cardinals fans had to say about Jay Happ and John Lester being the big-time additions that were going to bolster their rotation. But it worked. And as you look down the stretch, what they needed and what they got out of those two, it's pretty much exactly in tune with what they what they were looking for. If you projected their 2021 end-of-season results with the Cardinals over the course of a full season, here's what you would have had. Jay Happ, would have had 34 starts for 167 innings and a 4-0 ERA. John Lester, 34 starts, 187 innings, a 4.35 ERA. My question to you is this. If I told you you could lock it in right now, Lynn and Gibson will be for you in 2024. What the projections would have had for Happ and Lester in 2021. Are you signing up for that? Is that good enough for this team? To be able to be a legitimate contender, basically a combined 350 innings and a 4-0 ERA for each of them. So I I would lock it in because I like I I think there's a lower floor to that as well. Like I I think I could totally see where Lynn and Gibson have worse years than that, considering they had worse years last year compared to what those numbers are. So yeah, I, I would lock it in. Now what that does for the Cardinals in terms of like their ceiling, I I really don't know because I. I think that helps them get to this 85-win mark that we're talking about. I don't know if it does much more for them than that because uh, just about how I felt and how you said Luke Warren would be kindly when the Cardinals acquired Jay Happ and John Lester at the trade deadline, that's kind of how I felt when the Cardinals signed Lance Lynn and Kyle Gibson this offseason. So I would lock it in if those are their numbers, but I don't know how much that really helps this team because I thought their biggest issue last year wasn't an innings deficit like they like to think there was from their rotation. I think that was some of a problem. I think the bigger issue was is they didn't have enough swing and miss in their rotation. They didn't have enough talent in the rotation to be able to win at a consistent level. So I would lock this in, but I just don't really know how much this would help their ceiling. I, I think this is if these guys pitch like this, I would say they're probably 85-win team. I think it depends on the defense. I, I think it entirely depends on the defense this year. If your defense gets back to what it was in 2021, sure, yeah, you could have the result. Or you could have the pitchers like or um, like Jay Happ and John Lester, and it could work. And I think you'll get pretty good results out of somebody like a Kyle Gibson or a Lance Lynn. But if your defense is what it was last year, there's no chance. You have no chance whatsoever of being able to get these kinds of results out of those guys. Like, you had Bader, Carlson, O'Neal, 
Arenado at that version of Nolan Arenado form, Edmund at second base, Goldie, Yachty behind the plate, your defense was elite at almost every single position dating back to 2021. I can't say that about the 2024 Cardinals, man. As of today, you go into the season with a slightly below average defense. Hopefully, Mason Wynn can make up for that at shortstop. Hopefully, you get big-time results from Tommy Edmond in center field. Hopefully, you get a healthy season out of Lars Newtbar, which helps you in left field, and you get slight improvements from Jordan Walker in right. And if so, you could be average to good defensively this year. But 2021, you were elite, and that helped you get guys like Hap and Lester to pitch up to those levels. I think it's going to take a lot to get the same thing out of Lynn and Gibson this year. So to answer the question, like, would I sign up for it? Hell yeah, dude, because I think there's a pretty decent chance they're worse than what we saw from Happ and Lester with a 4-0 and a 4-3 ERA back in 2021. It's going to be hard for these guys to reach those levels. So I, I think the guys that this would impact the most on the defensive conversation would be Michaelis, which is a big one for the Cardinals, Absolutely. and Gibson. I don't know so much about Lance Lynn because I think his bigger issue is just keeping the ball in the ballpark, which the outfield can't catch if it's not in the ballpark. Um, but, like, I, I I would push back a little bit on the – we had, you asked me this question last week of what was the biggest issue for the Cardinals. I said pitching, you said defense. Yep. I would push back a little bit against the defense conversation, not because I thought it was good, but I don't think it was their biggest issue last year. I, I think if you had swing and miss, you could have gotten by with their defense last year. Because I look at, like, the Philadelphia Phillies. We talk about them a lot, right? They have a one-two punch in Nola and um, Zach Wheeler. But you do have more swing and miss this year than you had last year. They do. By a pretty good margin, actually. They do. And that's why I'm what I'm trying to say is, like, the defensive conversation, I don't think, like, if the defense was the same as it was last year— I think it hurts Michaelis and Gibson, but maybe you get you're better. You're still you're still better because their pitching is better than it was last year. That's what I'm trying to say. Is like the Phillies had the 26 worst defense in all of baseball. They were a playoff team, and they have a one-two punch in Nola and, and Wheeler. I don't think their issues were all. I think it was part of the issue was the defense, but I think their pitching issue last year was they didn't have guys with swing and miss. And I think the swing and miss is better this year, and I don't think the defense determines whether or not like Gibson and Lynn end up. I think it dictates if Gibson can get to this point. Lance Lynn, I think, is 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 he swinging? getting swing and miss and keeping the ball in the ballpark. That's his biggest issue for me, at least. Yeah. I, I think their defense was a bigger issue than we're giving it credit for right now. Um, I, I think last year they were horrific defensively for the vast majority of the season. I mean, we talked when we went down there, we talked to people with the Cardinals who said any, any time a ball is hit in the air, we're terrible, absolutely terrible. And I, when you have something like that, I think your pitchers sometimes pitch timid. I think that's something that we can't really account for in any of the numbers that we're going to look at. But I don't think that the Cardinals pitchers believed that the defense behind them was going to make a play. Whereas in 2021, how many times did we hear from Happ or Lester like, hey, just let the ball get into play and our defense is going to take care of it for us. We we knew that was going to take place. You have Arenado, DeYoung, uh, Edmund, Gold, like everybody behind them, they knew were going to make plays for them. So I, I genuinely believe their biggest issue from last year was the defense. Because if you had the same defense that they constructed this team, I remember it's Pakoda Day. I remember talking to Craig Goldstein this time last year, who is the managing editor for Baseball Perspectives, which is the platform that produces Pakoda. And we asked him, why is it that Pakoda seems to be low on the Cardinals every season? At that point, prior to last season, from 2015 to 2022, every single season, Pakoto was light on their projection for the Cardinals. We said, why is that? And he said, it's because the Cardinals have a type of pitcher that they rely on. They rely on this ground ball pitcher that you're saying, T-Bone, you're right. 
don't have enough swing and miss stuff. And the projections hate that because once the ball is put into play, they assume that it's going to be a average defense behind you. And that's where you get into like the fielding independent and all those numbers. But for the Cardinals, not an average defense. Previously, the Cardinals had had for most of those seasons a great defense behind their ground ball pitchers. And that makes those pitchers play up. Their performance is boosted by the defense behind them. And last year, they still had those same pitchers, but they had a terrible defense behind it. And so as a result, like the team that they had constructed was built on a house of cards and we had no idea. It would be like if you were building it like off of a cliff, but there was like this projection screen that was next to you. And so you didn't realize that you were on a cliff. You thought you were building it like in the middle of Missouri. And yet, oh no, like we're about to fall off of this cliff. That's what the Cardinals did last year. It was it was horrible. So this season, they're going to into it with more swing and miss, I think, to make up for the fact that they don't have the same defense that they were three years ago. If you told me today that you will get a 4-0 and a 4-3 ERA out of Lynn and Gibson this season and that they will they will pitch a combined 350 innings between them, I think we'll look back at this Cardinal season, assuming everything else kind of stays as expected, and say that was a successful year. So I, I think that is exactly what you need out of them. I don't think you need them to be stars, but you need them to be able to be representative mid-middle-of-the-rotation starters, and that gives you that. that. That would be good enough to be like a third and a fourth starter for you in 2024. Yeah, I, I agree. The The problem is, is they have four of those guys. And, and that's where we get back to our conversation of the number two. So, yes, I would sign up for that. And the reason I could just question what will their ceiling be is I think it is it will be determined by what – and we've talked about it. Do you feel that way? You you feel like Lynn and Gibson are in the same criteria as Michaelis and Matt's? Because I don't. I, I view them as two separate categories, I almost think three separate categories. I honestly. think they're in the same conversation as – Michaelis because Michaelis is a pitch to contact and his ERA will fluctuate on the defense hmm. and I, I think as you saw last year I think Michaelis was a four last year and I mean he had what a four three five ERA or a four eight five I think which is kind of like what we're talking about here in the projections is they're four three yeah, five the for Lester four he was like considered a number one starter for the Cardinals yeah, and they had a better defense and I think Michaelis benefited massively from the shift in both 2018 and 2022 Four seven eight ERA and thirty five starts. Like I, I think Michaelis, because of the banning of the shift and a pitch to contact pitcher, I think the ceiling for him is like a three or a four, which hmm. is the case for these projections that were. If if you went with Happ and Lester, they pitches like fours for the Cardinals that year. Would it year. surprise you if this year Jordan Montgomery and Miles Michaelis had similar numbers? Yes. I, I think Montgomery. I would expect Montgomery to have better numbers than Miles Michaelis. That'd be something worth monitoring because two years ago, Michaelis was a better pitcher than Jordan Montgomery for the same team. And I understand that they pitched both to the same defense, but I I think you can make a pretty strong argument that Miles Michaelis has more upside, honestly, than Jordan Montgomery because of what we've seen multiple seasons in the last five years. He's been a borderline Cy Young candidate. So I, I don't know, man. I, I think we're underselling the upside of Miles Michaelis. The downside is real, and we saw it a year ago, and that's concerning. But the upside, I think, is a lot better than what we're giving it credit for. All right, coming up next, better to forget it here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast, presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Vegas sets them up, and we're here to make the call. It's PK and Ferrario's Bet It or Forget It on 101 ESPN. Let's play a game of 
with better to forget it here on 101 ESPN 314-399-9646 is the air comfort service text line to get involved in the show. If you got a scenario, we'll tell you if we're betting it or forgetting it here on BK and Ferrario. T-Bone, I went through some of the projections last night over on Fangraphs. Today's Pakoda Day oh, here baby. in St. Louis, which means it's projection day. Ooh, Celebrate. Boy. I want you to better to forget it on these stat leaders for me. We can go through these bat, 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 quick hitter style. Batting average leader for the team in 2024, according to the Zips projections, will be... Big money, big money, big money, big money. Alec Burleson with a 272 ah. batting average. Better to forget it, Burley forget leads it. the team in batting average this year. Forget it. Forget it. No, I don't know how... I mean, maybe because he doesn't have a lot of playing time and he ends up hitting like 350, but no, I would say I would take Paul Goldschmidt over him. I would take Arnado over him. Newbar and Walker over him. I would take those four ahead of him before I got to Alec Burleson. Forget it for me as well. I don't envision Burley making a 28-point jump from last season. Now, my candidate number one guy is going to be Goldschmidt. Granted, he dropped off by about 50, but only three times, guys. Three times in his 13-year career has he actually hit below 290. I still think he is the guy to pick in this category. Yeah, I'm forgetting it. I think it's going to be Jordan Walker. I think Jordan Walker hits like 285-plus this upcoming season, and that ends up leading the team. All right, next one up, home run leader is Nolan Gorman. They have been projected for 28 home runs. Better to forget it, Gorman leads the team in homers this year. I'll bet it. I'll, I'll bet that, and I bet it could even be more than that. Um... I really hope it's more than that because that means if Goldie and Arnado aren't at that mark, there's serious problems with the offense. Yep. Um, but I, I would bet it. I could see where he leads them, where he gets this whole back issue figured out, plays more games, stays healthy, plays more than 119. And if that's the case, he's got the best raw power on the team. So bet it. I will forget it as well because I still need to see more power from the left side. Last year, four homers and 86 plate appearances against Southpaws. I'm rolling with Arenado here because last season he was below 30 for the first time since his second full season when you exclude the COVID year. Primed for a bounce back in that department. I would go with a bet on this one as well. I think that he's going to lead the team in homers. It'll all come down to his health, though. If he's healthy, I think he's fine. If he's not, obviously, that's going to lead to somebody else leading the team. Last one here. Better to forget it. These are the Zips projections, uh, who they have leading the team in innings pitched for the upcoming year. They have Miles Michaelis. They've got him at 165. Better to forget it. Miles Michaelis leads this Cardinals team in innings pitched in 2024. I would bet this because he's been right around that 200 mark the last couple of years he had two or he's actually surpassed 200 200 innings both last year and in 2022 he's healthy he could do that again and I, that would lead the way so I, I would bet this bet it for sure this is the one slam dunk nobody else on the staff is going to approach those totals when you think of miles michaelis you think of a number way way in excess of 160 in that range give him about 200 yet again yeah, I, I'm going to bet this as well. They've talked all offseason about the value of innings from guys like Lance Lynn, Kyle Gibson. I think they'll get innings from them. Sonny Gray, I think, is fewer innings than what we're talking about with the rest of these guys. But Lance Lynn, I think, would be the top contender. If it's not going to be Miles Michaelis in 2024, I would go Lance Lynn, actually, as the guy that ends up leading your team in innings. He threw 183 a year ago, despite having a 570 RA. If he's better, like if he's just the innings individually are better, he will get deeper into games again. It shouldn't be a shock to anybody if he gets to 200 innings for the Cardinals this upcoming season. What do you think their hope is in terms of like how many guys surpass one? I'll go 190. Three, two. I mean, realistically speaking, two. I think it's Lynn and Michaelis. But if you're going like 170 or above, three. I think Gibson would throw into that category as well. What What do you think the total will be for Gray? Then I would think like you're hoping. I think you're hoping for like 28 starts and like 165 innings. Oh, okay. Because I would say I would hope like. It's kind of been a square norm. 170 innings from 175 from Gray. 
to go 30 starts at least. He's only hit that number four times in his major league career. You know He's just I, not a guy that typically gives you a ton of innings over the course of the season. He's more of that like 100. I think if you set the over under at 150 innings this year, I would probably take the over, but there would be legitimate questions about it. If you have three guys in the conversation for 150 plus, that is already such a market improvement over last year. Keep in mind, Jordan Montgomery technically finished number two on the 2023 team with 120 innings. Case sure. closed. T-Bone? Yes. What do you have for us for better to forget it? Better to forget it. <laughs> well, I was just making sure that's where you were going with this. Better to forget it. Zach Thompson can take the role of Wade LeBlanc from that 2021 team. Oh, that's an interesting one. Uh, I'll forget it. I think he's going to primarily throw out of the bullpen this year. Um, but I, I like where your head's at there. See, I'm just really trying to recreate the 2021 Cardinals. Yeah. I mean, they've basically been trying to recreate the 2013 team. Yeah, you're not the, wrong. They wanted to bring back Brebbia, too. Um, I See, I would I would, for, I would, bet this. I hope that that's the role that they have him in. It's like the sixth starter. Because you know who I want to take the role that you're talking about in the bullpen? Libertor. They should abandon this whole idea of Matthew Libertor as a starter. He's been terrible at it. And he can't maintain fastball velocity when he's a starter. And you know who they keep talking about in the minor leagues that they're really high on and they basically have been laying out the breadcrumbs as he's going to become a bullpen arm because of that exact same issue? Hmm. Gordon Graceffo. Yep. So just admit it. It's time for Libertor to go do the same thing where he becomes a bullpen arm. I bet, I'm betting this just on hopium that he will be their sixth starter and can serve in their Wade LeBlanc role and be really good for them at coming off the minor leagues if someone gets hurt. Bet it or forget it from my side. Kadarius Tony, having never attacked the Chiefs in any sort of rant whatsoever, Obviously. he receives an NFL start in the future, moving forward at the wide receiver position oh, for yeah. any team. Yeah, yeah. Right. He'll, he'll start for somebody next year. He's too talented not to. Some terrible team will give him an opportunity. Uh, I thought you were going with something for the Super Bowl. I thought you were going to say he's going to start in the Super yeah. Bowl. Yeah. <laughs> so I, if you set the over-under at 0.5 touches in the Super Bowl, I would take the under. I, I think he's going to be inactive. I think the Chiefs have made it clear oh, yeah. what their decision is here. They're not playing Kadarius Toney. They tried McCole Hardman for a game. He got one snap in the AFC Championship game. They're exclusively playing the guys that they can trust. Marquez Valdez-Scantling, while untrustworthy in catching the football for the most part this season— was at least in the right spots. He was going to, he was running the right route. He was lining up in the right position. And that was a hard thing for some of the other guys on this roster. So yeah, I, I think he'll start for somebody next year. I just, it will not be in Kansas city. I think he's done with the chiefs. Yeah. I, I'd agree with that. I, I would bet this. I think somebody will give him a shot. I think you're right. It'll be a bad team because he does have talent. Now they'll have to work on the whole idea of like lining up on sides, but that's one of those that's easy <laughs> to fix. So uh, I would bet this. I don't know. He projects as a bit of a depth piece, albeit one still with upside for me right now. It'll be interesting to see. All right, bet it or forget it. This one comes from the 314. You guys can get yours in on the Air Comfort Service X line at 314-399-9646 or the Graveyard, the chat over on YouTube, youtube.com slash 101 ESPN STL is the other places you can do that. Bet it or forget it. The Cardinals have at least five players hit 25 or more home runs this year. Goldie, Arenado, Gorman. Walker. You could throw Walker into that mix in Contreras. So, yeah, I'll bet it. Yeah, I'll bet it, too. I, I think those are probably the five. Maybe Newpar could get there if he's healthy. What did he finish at last year in home runs? Is he like 16, 17, something like that? Yeah, and he didn't play in. He oh. dealt with a bunch of injuries. So yeah, 14. 14. 14. Yeah, I could, I could see maybe like he goes on a heater. He could get there. 
I'll bet this. I, I think I think they're going to have five guys to hit that mark. If you go with Newt's 162 game pace from the last two years, he's right around 20 home runs. So somewhere yeah. in this range. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to forget this one solely because I think you'll have a number of guys, five or more, actually creep into the 20s. But considering last year, you barely had three scraped by that 25 barrier. You expect more, obviously, in the way of lift, of power from Walker, Newbar, et cetera. But there's nothing wrong with having a nice collection there between five and seven in the low 20s. Balance. Uh, better to forget it, guys. 314-399-9646 is the Air Comfort Service text line. Better to forget it. Caleb Williams will go number one overall, but it will not be to the Chicago Bears. I'm going to forget this. I, I think the Bears are going to reset the quarterback clock, and they are going to draft him, and they'll get that fifth-year option. He's not going to be making a lot of money, and they're that team that's kind of got the roster in place. You think about it. They've got DJ Moore, who's a good number one wide out. They've got a defense that was played really well in the second half of last year, and they've got the top edge rusher in sweat now that they just paid. So they've got some of those pieces that we talk about when you're building a roster around the quarterback. And now you can bring in Caleb Williams, who's going to be on that rookie deal, not making a ton of money. It just makes too much sense to do that and then trade fields and probably get a potential first round pick or at least a second round pick for him. So I'm going to bet it. They draft him. Yeah, I'm going to bet it as well because the departure of Fields, it's inevitable. Tanner, as you said, there are a number of good pieces on the offensive side of the football in Chicago. Now, Williams did showcase maybe a few more chinks in the armor last season at USC, but you still love the arm talent there. You're excited to see what he could potentially do with his array of options. Yeah, he's going to go number one. I can't believe this is even a conversation. I don't understand what this whole story is of, Caleb Williams doesn't want to go to Chicago. Cool, then don't sign. Like, that's your option. If you're If I'm the Chicago Bears... I'm approaching this as if he's like this guy that's already on my roster and is saying, I'm going to hold out. Okay, go ahead. You're going to do the exact same thing next year because the contract just rolls over them. You have no leverage, Caleb Williams. I understand. Hey, maybe you would prefer to go to another team. Cool. You want to go to Washington? You think that's the spot that's really great for you? That's the thing I don't understand is... Yes, the Bears looked like a mess early on in the season. Remember the whole thing was, who was the defensive coordinator or offense coordinator, like got arrested or something? <laughs> like, they were a mess early on. And I was like screaming from the mountaintops of, they need to blow this thing up again and fire everybody. But then they got settled down. They trade for sweat. They look somewhat competent in the second half. It's not like Washington where I look at that roster and go, what the hell are they doing? It's baffling. I, I don't, the, the reports that are coming out surrounding Caleb Williams don't make any sense whatsoever. He's going to... If the Bears want him, he's going to be a Bear, and he will go number one overall. And I believe all of that will actually will absolutely take place. All right, coming up next, NIL is changing college sports for good, but it's also changing the value of late-round picks in the NFL. We'll explain why coming up here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast, presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. changing the game for college sports i mean mizzou just had 12 million dollars basically thrown into its nil slush fund yesterday by an anonymous donor that's some big time money that's being earmarked for the student athletes but now it's having a trickle down effect for the nfl draft alongside tanner hendrickson and bradford bruns i'm brandon kylie the ringer had a really good piece the other day t-bone about how much lighter in literal terms of numbers, this year's NFL draft is for underclassmen than it was in previous years. 
Last year, there or five years ago, excuse me, there were 136 underclassmen that declared for the NFL draft. So early draft enrollees. This year, there are 58. That is less than half of what there were for underclassmen five years ago. And it's not hard to trace back where this is coming from. It's because kids are getting more opportunities by staying in college. It's twofold. It's one, NIL. I can earn money while I'm staying in college. I can continue working towards my degree while earning that money. Why not? The NFL is still going to be there at the end of this. I'm a fifth round pick right now. Maybe I could boost my stock by coming back, right? There's, There's no reason, no urgency to leave right now. The other reason is the transfer portal. What if you're a guy that was going to Western Kentucky? You're a junior. You were projected to be a fourth or fifth round pick based on the results that you had on the field at Western Kentucky. Now imagine if you take those results that you had there and you translate them to Florida State or Kentucky, Mizzou, whatever. You can now transfer up and have that opportunity of having a prove-it year while making an IL money at that new university by coming up from your previous school. This is going to have a significant trickle-down effect in the NFL. Last year, you saw a team like the Dallas Cowboys use some of their late-round picks to trade for Stephon Gilmore or to trade for Brandon Cooks. It was a smart use of those resources. T-Bone, I think now more than ever before, you will see smart teams investing those draft picks that previously were you know, underclassmen. Maybe you're hoping to hit a lottery pick, basically. Just Will this work? I don't know. But the 10% chance that it pays off, that guy could be really good in the fourth, fifth, sixth round. I'm just going to use those to go get as many different veterans on the cheap as I possibly can now. Yeah, I think it's going to be interesting to see if that becomes a theme for teams that are, I don't know what you would call the Cowboys, because I don't know if they were all in, because when I think all in, I think the Rams were just like throwing first round picks at everybody. But you're right. They did the smart decision. We're getting veterans on the cheap for these late round picks. And I think that's really smart. I think Miami did that as well last offseason when they acquired Jalen Ramsey from the Rams for like a sixth round pick or whatever it was. So it it's going to be interesting to see how these NFL teams will go about it. And these teams that are kind of like on the fringe of like, hey, we're a playoff team, but we want to get real serious and we need to go out and we need to improve a whole. Oh, here's this veteran that's out there that some team wants to kind of get off their books. I think it's the smart way. I think you're right to go about it. Because you're right, it's a lottery if you're going to hit on those late-round picks. Now, some teams are actually really good at it. The Rams had a ton of success recently in the late rounds of these drafts. But I bet you that they would say, hey, if we can go out and get a certainty, we'll trade our back back fifth, sixth, seventh-round picks to go out and acquire that guy that will help us, and we know for sure he will help us I was about to say, rather than development. It's also something that's unsustainable. Sure, yeah. they, they hit on it. Great. You're going to continue to press your luck? You believe that that's going to work in 2024 and 25 and 26 and 27? Because I'll show you the entire history of the NFL draft of great general managers who didn't do that. Like, they think they're going to hit on every pick. You have to, of course. Like, otherwise, why are you even making the selection? There's reasons why they're picking all of these different players in an NFL draft. But the odds of it hitting, it's pretty, pretty damn low. If I'm sitting at a blackjack table and for four consecutive hands, I somehow end up with blackjack. That doesn't mean that fifth hand's going to come around and I'm more likely to hit it that fifth time around. No, it just means I got really lucky on four consecutive hands. I'm probably walking away, honestly, at that point in time. The Rams should probably do the same thing. They should say, you know what? I'm taking my winnings and I'm going to start trading off some of those assets to go get guys that are proven commodities because now... I have cheap, cost-controlled young players because I was so good in the NFL draft late in the rounds in recent seasons. I I think this is really good for the players, though, as much as it is like a downside for the team. 
when you have these opportunities to remain in college, I will never forget Henry Josie is a guy that I always refer back to. He had no reason to come back to Mizzou. None. He's a guy that had a significant injury at the University of Missouri. He's able to come back from it and in 2013 had this incredible season, the year that Missouri got back on track and he was a driving force behind it. He still technically had a year left of eligibility. There was no reason for him to return. He couldn't make NIL money at Mizzou. There was nothing left for him to prove. He had the injury history. He's a running back, putting more tread on those tires. It's not going to make him a better draft pick. He just, he needed to go. It was his time. If he had played in 2024, if that same 2013 season and his entire backstory all, if he just push it up 10 years, and now he's doing that basically in the Schrader role last year, he'd probably come back for the 2024 season. And it'd probably be good for everybody involved if he had done so, because he could become a local legend at Mizzou. He could add even more tape to what he had already shown, and he could have another season of showing, like, hey, I am fully healthy. This knee is good to go. And, and he could profit off of it, because I, I don't know that he was ever going to be an NFL running back, but he could make some more money off of NIL at Mizzou. Instead, he didn't have any of those opportunities available to him, and so he just he has to go to the NFL. It, it didn't work out for him there. And his story was just over. His football story had, had come to a conclusion a year before it really needed to. So for stories like that and so many others, I'm really glad that these opportunities now exist and these kids can stay in school for the extra year instead of leaving early when the opportunity is not guaranteed by any stretch. Even if you are drafted, there's no guarantee that you're going to make that roster. The odds are incredibly low that you actually end up on the final 53. So I'm happy for the kids that these opportunities exist, but it is going to have some serious trickle-down effect going into the offseason. We're going to hit the BK and Ferrario Rewind coming up next. We're right back to the BK and Ferrario podcast, presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Hey, on Friday morning, it's time to heat up St. Louis during the 24th annual Hardee's Rise and Shine fundraiser. Stop by any participating Hardee's in the bi-state area on Friday morning and grab a sausage biscuit or egg biscuit for just $1. 100% of the proceeds and all funds collected will help heat up St. Louis, supporting people in need both in Missouri and Illinois. On Friday morning between 6 and 8 a.m., I will be out at the Hardee's off of Zumbel. So if you want to come out, say hello over there. That would be absolutely fantastic. Otherwise, any of the participating locations in the St. Louis metro region, you can go over there, help out a uh, very good cause. Coming up here in just about a minute or two, we'll give you an opportunity to win a pair of single session passes for the 2024 State Farm Missouri Valley Men's Basketball Tournament. It is the return of Arch Madness. It's coming up March 7th through the 10th at Enterprise Center. We'll tell you how you win those tickets here in just a moment. T-Bone, whenever we started the show today, we did so with the Pakoda Projections. They have the Cardinals winning 85 and a half games this year. I'll just round up 86 games. They have them as the third best team in the National League. I think this is the first time that I can remember that the Pakota projections actually match up with what I yeah. think is consensus among Cardinals fans. Typically, they're a little low this year. I think that's right in line with what all of us expect. The difference is we think the National League around the Cardinals is going to be a little better than Pakota seems to. Yeah, I, the difference for me is I, I agree with the Cardinals at about 85, 86 wins. I agree that the Dodgers and Braves are better. I, where I disagree is that Philadelphia and Arizona is like right around the same as the Cardinals. In fact, they project them to be a little bit worse. I think those two teams are slightly better than the Cardinals. I would say they're the fifth best team, in my opinion, in the National League. But I, I, for the most part, agree with the projections. And these projections just show me what I've thought most of the offseason 
it's going to be a down year in the National League. It, it really is. The Cardinals, their win projection has them projected as the third best in the NL on the Pocota projections. For hindsight, that's seventh in the American League. To give you an idea of how loaded the AL is, I, I think it's going to be a down year for the NL, and I think that's why you can say, like, hey, they win the NL Central, they get into a wild card round. I could see where they can win a wild card series, and then after that, who knows what happens. It's also why I would just be more aggressive. I've said that this too. a million different times. I'll say it one more today. If you're going to have a muddled middle in the National League, it presents a unique opportunity for you to go out and really like drop the hammer and go be the best team from that muddled middle group of teams. Don't be. You're not going to be the Dodgers. You're not going to be the Braves. You're never. There's no one move that you could make to reach that pinnacle. But you could be the next team in line. You could be the team that takes advantage of the Braves or the Dodgers if things don't end up going their way or with one injury ends up taking place that kind of pushes those teams off to the side. So that's what I would do. I would sign one of Blake Snell or Jordan Montgomery. The Cardinals clearly are not. But you can win a pair of tickets to see the Missouri Valley Men's Basketball Conference right tournament right now. 314-399-9646 is the Air Comfort Service text line. If your texts are number 101 and you can tell us what T-Bone said he would compete in if he was involved in a food eating competition. What kind of food did he say he would eat? If you are texture number 101 with the correct answer, you're getting a pair of tickets to see the MVC tournament March 7th through the 10th. It's a single session pass. Coming up tomorrow, we will talk to you guys from 11 a.m. to 2 p.m. The Fast Lane's coming up next here on 101 ESPN. You've been listening to the BK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN.